I've got a story to tell you. It's all about spies. And if it's true, which I think it is, you boys are going to need a whole new organization. Smoke Podcast. I'm your host, John Cribs. We've got a big one today. This is an exciting thing that we've been kind of working up to, and we're going to kind of get right into it as quickly as we can. Uh, but I'm joined by two fantastic gentlemen. I'm joined by a uh, fan favorite, co-host of uh, Pop- Popcorn Escatan, Mr. John Arminio. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on this uh, on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk about these movies. We're always happy to have you, always happy to have you back. And for the first time ever, we've got our buddy, Mr. Bill Scurry, who's the co-host of I Don't Get It podcast, Word Up Amsterdam. He's the creator of the fantastic video essays on American Caesar salad, including world-class tributes to Brad DeReef, um, David Warner, Kevin McMillan, lots of fantastic videos. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm good. I'm, I'm happy to finally be upgraded from intern to uh, temporary co-host. This is a big boost for me. Yeah, well, it's definitely long overdue. We're very happy to have you here. Uh, I've opened talk- up the mail here for so long. You know, it's just nice to be able to see the top floor. <laughs> you moved your way up. It's great. Yeah, it's really you, you can have American it to you. Dream, American dream I'm happening like- in Holland of all places. <laughs> you never know. But what are we talking about, guys? We're talking about spy movies, which is a very broad topic. I know spy movies, and we kind of decided we're going to do it by going by decade the kind of idea behind this episode was we would pick one big spy movie for every decade from the 1920s to the present and kind of spend some time talking about it sort of what its its place in history is sort of what the pop cultural kind of leanings were at the time the political kind of uh, angle of it i don't think we're going to get too terribly into like real life stuff because we really want to focus more on the art here kind of on the uh, the films themselves but it's going to be a two-part episode. In this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, the 1920s to the 1970s. And in part two, we're going to be going, getting into the 1980s to the present, the 2020s. 100 years of spy cinema is sort of the idea. And this is obviously something that can be very sprawling. So I don't want to dally too long. There's just a lot to get to. Uh, and Bill's ringing in from Holland, as I you know mentioned, the birthplace, I believe, of Tom Holland, star of uh, 2019 Spies in Disguise, <laughs> if I'm not incorrect. And the filmmaker behind uh, *Fright Night*, among others, too. Yeah, a lot of lot of luminaries come from uh, the the Netherlands for sure. But I did want to kind of. If there's one thing I learned, guys, from all these spy movies that we've been watching in the last few weeks, it's that it's important to trace things back to their source, right, to their origin. So the inception of this episode is, I really only know Bond movies when it comes to spy cinema. John and I obviously spent 15 or 20 hours discussing Bond movies on this very podcast. And the Bond movies obviously romanticize the spy profession in a big way. They make it seem very glamorous, very adventurous. It obviously helps that Bond is really more of an adventurer and that his opponents are always indisputably evil, right? They're more like supervillains or mad scientists uh, trying to bomb the civilized world into the ocean or radiate it from space. And in reality, obviously, spying 
as a profession is something that's morally repugnant. You know, it's something that is really the worst of humanity. You know, it's manipulation, it's treachery, it's deceit. It's everything that's awful, you know, um, that's weaponized expertly for the sake of espionage. And subconsciously, there might have been something in me that didn't want to watch these movies and get cheap thrills out of something that in real life has like created so much misery in the world. But I was curious about them. I thought, you know, what what do they have to say about that? And I think the kind of uh, just to kind of start off like the, the immediate take that I have is that they have something to say about them, that they actually have interesting takes on like what this thing is and what it does to people and what the victimization is like i thought it was interesting i mean they were not unentertaining in any way there were some of them that were just as fun as any bond film but i i'm really glad that like i took the time to watch these these films my only other take is that four four out of five chance michael herndon will be in them that's something else that i learned from these films but bill just to start things off i uh, spoken to john arminio i know of his bond fandom What's your relationship to the James Bond movies? Did you grow up with them? Are you fans of them particularly? Yeah, Bond slotted right in uh, next to Star Trek and Star Wars at the beginning of the early 80s. You know, and uh, I'm I'm like a lot of people in that Roger Moore may be my Bond just by identification because that's what I grew up with. But I mean, I have no problem saying that Sean Connery is the uber Bond of them all. To go from seeing View to a Kill, Octopussy, Fear Eyes Only, you know, that that, that rock block of, of hinge bonds from the turn, of the turn of the decade there, to seeing the old school stuff, to going back and watching Dr. No um, from Russia with Love, et cetera, et cetera. You know, ultimately Goldfinger, which I think, I've gone on record by saying I think that's the you can't get better the, a Bond movie than Goldfinger. That's that's the template. I mean, it's, I don't think it's really revolutionary to say that it does everything that Bond movies would try to do, and it did you know did them. It took three movies to get there. Yeah, I I, I love Bond. You know, I don't think they always cast him correctly. Not a huge fan of Lazenby, although I really like that movie. Um, and Roger Moore was way too old by the time he was getting into it. But but Dalton was a great Bond. Pierce Brosnan was a good Bond on paper, but I think he was directed too much like a Bill Dozier character for Batman towards the end. And yeah, you know, uh, Daniel Craig was also an exceptional Bond. Did not apparently, like the... if you co-star with Pierce Brosnan in a Bond movie, you will win an Oscar one day. That's true. Yeah, it's, recently. it's exceptional. Like, so where Robbie Coltrane died before he get to, he got to do that. But yeah, I think the Oscar for Jodon Baker. There you go. That's a that's a good question. Yeah. Regardless, yeah. Jimbo, I think that's um you know one of the things that kind of killed Bond for me during the Haggis Purvis years is that the addition of continuity uh really took the fun out of it because I think Bond at his heart is really episodic and I don't think serialized stuff. I mean, if anything, we're going to spend the next 19 to 20 hours talking about great episodic movies that tell a story all told. You know, of the decades as they turn as they told through. But you know, James Bond to me is like one of the ultimate episodic adventures. And when you go serial, um, I don't know, kind of like takes the shine off of it. So John, let me ask you, um, we took the same approach to the Bond movies. We kind of examined them by decade and sort of how they changed and how the kind of attitudes changed and kind of dictated the way that those movies were going to be. How many of these movies that I kind of sent out to you guys, what percentage of them had you seen before or were you familiar with? I was familiar with, a lot of them, and I, I had seen a few, but a lot of these movies were uh, entirely new to me, you know, especially, uh, you know, the one from the 20s we're, we're going to get to. But, you know, you know, I've I've seen a ton of Fritz Lang before, you know, obviously Hitchcock looms large over this genre. And so 
a lot of that stuff I was familiar with, but you know, so many of these things that were really eye-opening experiences were movies like like Five Fingers, uh, the Joseph L. Mankiewicz film that I was completely unaware of, um, The Mask of Demetrios, which I was completely unaware of that I thought was an absolute delight. So it was a real mix of totally new experiences and movies that I've known about for a long time. And it's been a real journey to see the, the commonalities in, in, in themes. And, you know, you were talking about how spycraft is so repugnant in real life. It's just been interesting to see how these movies all sort of bend over backwards or a lot of them, at least to make you sympathize with the protagonist or yeah. or like them i mean you know ministry of fear is about a guy who is just out of a mental asylum who stumbles onto like a bake sale and and winds up in, in a spy plot so it's just you know filmmakers know that these characters do the worst things imaginable um, and so to get them roped into these adventures is a real is, is part of the entertainment, I think, after you've seen so many. Definitely. And that's something we'll definitely get into when we're talking about this is kind of the, you know, the perspective, you know, the kind of authoritative voice that these movies take and the kind of moral judgments that they pass on their characters, I think is definitely interesting. Uh, the other thing I feel like is important to get out of the way is that so many of these movies are new to me. Like, really, this is more or less exploratory it's like a primer for me of spy movies so the movies that i selected as like our main one kind of the kind of thing we ended up doing was picking like one main one for the decade and then sort of a secondary pick and then we're going to talk about other films from those decades as well so i didn't so these are not meant to be like the definitive spy movie of the 50s or 60s or whatever these picks are really like just drawn out of a hat more or less i mean one i have seen one or two of these films before but mostly it's new to me. So it's like, I know this one is supposed to be important. So that's the one I'm going to pick. It's not necessarily the one that is most reflective of the decade as, you know, examining more than one film, you know, for each decade, I think we'll kind of get a more kind of a broader view of sort of what kind of films were coming out at that time in this genre. Anything else we need to get out of the way, guys, before we just launch right into this? Uh, any other thoughts before we get started? Well, I, um, you know, you'd mentioned Bond before. You know, that's that's a good overarching thing because Bond begins in what, 1961 with Dr. No, 62? Yes, I should mention too that kind of the inception of this came also from John and I talking about we should do something for the 60th anniversary of Dr. No coming out in the United States. And since we'd already done Bond, the idea of non-Bond spy films, that's yeah. kind of how this whole thing got started. And I like, you know, to reiterate a little bit what you said, Bond tells the story of the decades in which it was made. And, you know, I mean, you've had one creative set of people or two creative sets of people more or less guiding it from start to finish or start to continue, as it were. But what I really like about these movies is that, I mean, it is definitely epochal to go from spying in the big one in World War II to go to spying during the Cold War. Talk about a pivot in the way these things are done. I mean, and it, it's... It's kind of a, you know, a poor man's history lesson through popular culture of the time is to see well, what, what were the things saying about the epochs in which they were made? It's fascinating to, you know, the, the moral judgment, like you say, the sort of uh, repugnance of it, the fact that there's this valorous patriotic aspect to what they were doing during World War II. 
um, you know, you you get to all that, all those questions come up with a pickup on South Street with Dick Widmark's character, you know, just really balancing this moral imperative versus, you know, his, his inherent shittiness as a human being. That stuff is great. Um, you know, to, to harken back to a video I did, I looked at the essentially the three bounty movies, the one with Clark Gable, the one with Marlon Brando and the one uh, the bounty with uh, Tony Hopkins. And, you know, those were like three different periods of time. And it's like what they say about mutinies is what the decades of the 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 the, the on Shaolong had to say about those. The, you know, what is it like to overthrow your captain? Is it frowned upon? Is there some justification for it? It changes. The meaning pivots depending on what decades you're in. And the spy stories tell that same tale as well. That's a great comparison. Yeah. Like, are we meant to sympathize with Fletcher Christian or Bly, you know, in this particular uh uh, or you know whoever the those versions of those characters are in these spy movies is definitely something to keep in mind uh john you ready to get into it any last uh opening thoughts i'm ready let's do He's this ready let's launch into the 1920s and I, I i took i took so much pain sitting up uh the structure of this the 20s we actually only have one movie because i really feel like there's only one movie you got to talk about in the 1920s when it comes to spy movies and that is a uh, movie by one of the best to do it like right one of the greatest capital f filmmakers who ever existed certainly one of the greatest to come out of germany which has produced its share of phenomenal movie directors herr fritz lang with his film spion or spies from 1928 and the setup of this movie is that strange things are happening throughout the world uh, but particularly in germany where the secret service find themselves repeatedly confounded by a clandestine criminal organization that they cannot pinpoint, they cannot figure out what the source of it is. So they uh, turn to Agent 326, who is a uh, uh, a master of disguise, <laughs> at least uh, at least as a hobo hanging out on the street, who you know is a immediate kind of James Bond type adventurer. Uh, he even has a trusty chauffeur, Franz, which I love. It's kind of like a uh, Mo Shrevnitz, uh relationship to the shadow in the old comic book, who's a manservant sidekick, obviously popularized by Alfred Pennyworth, you know, in superhero lore later on. And he sets off to find out this criminal syndicate, but they're ahead of him. They already know he's coming. They send out their own super agent whose name is Sonia. And she has the power to, you know, be beguile and seduce enemy agents and uh, totally veer them into um, amoral territory. And I think one of the, first early questions that's interesting to ask about these movies and uh, certainly in terms of perspective is like who are the bad guys right who are the villains of these films and in this case the villain is a very bondian kind of mad scientist type villain named uh Hadji, who's played by rudolph klein rogue who was he was the mad scientist in metropolis played dr mabuse this is essentially transporting fritz long's you know evil dr mabuse into a spy uh film He's a fun villain in a lot of ways. You know, he's uh, he sends disloyal agents to their rooms like they're disobedient children. He's almost the pimp of supervillains, sending out these female agents to seduce enemy agents and get information out of them. And he has a he's a, got a bank for a front. Like he's a he's an economic guy, you know. And he's also has this side gig as a clown, which is amazing. It's almost like the bad guy version of Scaramouche. Uh, I love that aspect about this movie. It's such a weird thing to add. But I think in terms of like who the bad guys are, it is pretty uh, am ambiguous. But at the same time, he's got like a Lenin goatee. And it's clearly like uh, a Russian sort of thing. One of the characters, one of the subplots, uh, Colonel Jalusik, 
is clearly based on an Austrian colonel who had spied for the Tsar during World War II. Um, there's obviously a lot of Red Scare stuff already happening at this era in the 1920s. So much of this film, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like it is, it's Fritz Lang, so it is beautifully shot. It is gorgeous to look at. There are so many amazing uh, uh, compositions and beautiful lighting, obviously. And it's also just, it's it's two and a half hours, but it's jam-packed with action. It doesn't feel like it at all. It feels like it flies by. It's my thought anyway. I'm going to uh, throw it out to John just to start. Uh, you said this is the first time you saw it. What'd you think? Yeah. Uh, you know, it has a real dynamite opening like that, like that initial shot of a guy riding a motorcycle, just shot straight up at his face with like the wind blowing in his hair and his, and his goggles on it's as, you know, dynamic an image as any action movie can hope for, you know, as an opening. And so, you know, you, as many movies as I've seen, you know, it, it's still, like in my brain, like oh yeah, that's right. Like a silent film can be exciting, <laughs> and so that it was that you know that's a real treat to be reminded of that. My my yeah. kids cannot stand sitting through silent films. I tried to show mm -hmm. them Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, and they almost revolted. You know, like yeah. they almost like left the house of their own accord. They came in during the climax of this, during the bank raid of this, and they were compelled. They sat down and watched the whole thing. Oh, so great. that says a lot, I think, to this particular film that even my si my silent movie hating kids who love Buster Keaton, of course, who doesn't love Buster Keaton, but mm -hmm. um, we're, we're, we're drawn into it still. And, you know, immediately I was just taken with how this film plays with identity, which is going to be a running theme through, you know, all of these movies. But, you know, when Agent 326 first appears, he is in his hobo disguise, but he's it looks like he's without makeup um it's just the actor and like a maybe a week's worth of scraggly beard and so it's interesting that that an actor without makeup is the character in disguise and then when he sort of becomes his agent self he then is put in the silent film actor pancake makeup and so the, immediately you're sort of wrestling with the meta-ness of you know what is the film saying about who we really are what the identities these spies take on is that is that their true selves when you live as you know for like you said a clown for so long do you become a clown do you become just a tool for the state what are you what are your motivations and and i think certainly the female agents um in the villains employ also wrestles also wrestles with that and so as arch as a lot of these you know narratives are in this era of filmmaking especially with you know a, a villain sitting behind a desk pressing buttons and and causing catastrophes uh they're it's wrestling with that you know within this movie and i find i find that pretty compelling yeah even that the villain like you mentioned has like an alter ego and the fact that he's introduced in a wheelchair and we believe that he's like another you know, crazy wheelchair villain, like another mm. ableist, you know, uh, sort of bad portrayal of a villain, but that's false. Like that, even that's a lie. He got the big twist. Sorry for everyone spoiling a hundred year old movie. He, you know, gets up and gets out of the wheelchair. And uh, it turns out that, that that's just another, sorry to use the phrase crutch for him. Uh, you know, another weapon that he's using against people for whatever reason. There is a lot of red scare imagery in here, but he's also a banker. Like he's the epitome of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, the movie is sort of like trying to have its cake and eat it too by played into the late 20s bitterness against the ultra rich, but also this guy's a, a, a communist. I don't really know how to place that. So um, what do you guys think? I think that's a great point. I think especially in Weimar era Germany between World War One and Two, when uh, the economy was so uh, miserable for everybody, mm-hmm. when yeah. everyone, nobody had money and, and everybody, you know, was desperate for some kind of a change. And that is why socialism and Hitler, you know, became a thing that, you know, making the banker the bad guy is definitely significant for that reason. Um, I should also mention, because I forgot to say during the Russian things, another thing that Long had based this at Long and, and uh, uh, Thea von Harlow is uh, his wife and, and writer, uh, who was the original novelizer, I should bring up. Like she like wrote novels and scripts at the same time. So like Spies came out as a book before it came out as a movie, even though she wrote them simultaneously. It's based on a 1926 true story where Scotland Yard had raided a spy nest operating under the cover of Soviet uh, trade delegation. Uh, so there was definitely that concern in Germany at the time that like during this economic crisis, like the Russians are going to slide in and take over. And like, that's going to be a thing. And that's obviously kind of fuels the prejudice against foreigners and against Russia specifically during this time. So it's very significant that he's a banker 100%. Bill, what are your thoughts on, on spies? Yeah, not just the Russian thing, John, but also there is a lot of Orientalism. And by that, I mean, with a capital O referring to the East, because a lot of this has to do with intercepting a treaty that's been signed by Japanese emissaries. So You're not you know, talking about rugs specifically. And so not in this case, verify. not talking okay. about yeah, right. Persian and Berber rugs, but something a little different. Or yeah, Ajay <laughs> Dar for the house. Nice something that brings it all together. But um yeah, you know, I mean, I guess it's I don't know if it, it's a precursor to that uh, Molotov Ribbentrop, you know, which was wasn't even an idea in anybody's mind, but it was something very much that, you know, between two enemies that they would sort of cut a side deal that was very historically significant in the middle of all this stuff. That it kind of is a precursor to that unintentionally. Um, so th- there is a little bit of that looking outside at the uh, or- the enemies coming into the borders that seem porous enough. Uh, and yeah, John, I think the Weimar thing is really super important because, you know, if I think of Fritz Lang, I think of Weimar Germany. I mean, not just the fact that the Deutsche Mark could, you know, crumble down to, to, you know, the paper it was printed on, but the idea that you don't get things like uh, Metropolis, you, you know, you need that creative uh, pressure cooker of the Weimar era to give us this great art that came out of there, all the Brecht and Vile and, um, you know, all the movies that you said before. Um, and, it, you know, that brings me to Rudolf Klein Roga. Roga, Roga yeah, I, I believe his name would be with a schwa at the end, Klein Roga. Um, he is doing this thing, you know, he was, I don't want to say inventing screen acting, but he's definitely innovating screen acting, as he always did, as he did in, in Metropolis. You watch his expressionist mannerisms you watch the way he blows smoke out of one single nostril the way his his toilet the way his hair and his grooming you know that it it is a it is a mixture of dragging the stage onto screen and then making it its own you know uh foundling entity by innovating of of in the pro, you know, in outside the proscenium arch onto the celluloid frame, and this movie has so many great examples of what Fritz Lang does does marvelously. Why he was such an innovative filmmaker, and it was stunning to think that um, apparently his budget had been really severely handicapped based on how much he spent on Metropolis. Because if you watch this movie, where where are the cut corners? I mean, there is no exaggeration. There's a fucking train crash, which is almost there is a replicated train crash where they built. 
you know, a train in a tunnel with the wreckage and the disaster. It is one to one. There, there was no shortcuts um, to creating this. I mean, you know, it's all backstage stuff that was done somewhere in uh, central Germany, but uh, it looks incredibly realistic. You know, these people drive around the sets in these cars at high speeds. And like you said, John, before about the motorcycle thing, yeah, that was tricked up at such an angle with a wind machine to make it look like the guy was motorcycling very fast. But it is a great special effect to start off with um, the action imperative that you're watching uh, a little bit of a um, mission statement about this this thing is going to move and it's going to haul ass all the way through and it's not going to let up uh, for one single moment. I think it, you especially appreciate that in silent films, if you're going to be a spy, you got to be extra shifty. <laughs> you really got to like <laughs> play it up. You got to be looking at both sides. You know, John like uh, had made fun of a guy twir literally twirling his mustache like a devious guy. Like you got to do that. You got to be like that level of like devious and obvious about like your shiftiness in this movie. You know what else I liked? Uh, I just want to, you mentioned Billy Fritsch before who plays Agent 326. And John, when you talked about him not wearing the makeup and he's in his hobo gear, the tramp gear, the hilarious thing, I'm watching it and it's nearly, it's one of the first images of the movie when they get past the montage at the very beginning that sets the stage for, um, you know, how quickly it's going to cut and, you know, how how frantic it is. He looks like he could be walking around the streets of Greenpoint, one-to-one. -one. He looks like a Brooklyn dude today in 1928 without all the makeup on. And when he cleans himself up and shaves and, and, and pomades his hair, all of a sudden he does take on all the aspects of a pancake theater, theater actor. He looks like that kind of guy. You wonder, well, did human beings ever actually look like this in real life? And the irony is it's like when you watch him as the tramp, that's a very recognizable human person. That's like seeing a Renaissance painter or or like Franz Halls or Rembrandt, where it's like, that's an actual human face I can recognize rather than a beatific image from Botticelli or something that's idealized. That's the actual guy you're seeing. And that's rare to find in this, in this period. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering if the audience in 1928 would have seen the pancaked version of 326 as, oh, that is what a person looks like. And then through the language of silent film, when he looks like an actual person, oh, that's a bum. And, you know, I think we're so separated from the, how the tropes of silent film were just standard filmmaking language that I, I'm, I'm just curious. I would like to go back to the 20s and just like ask people, <laughs> like, does that look like, you know, a guy on the on the streets of Berlin or, or what have you? I want to go back to something that Bill um, was saying about Metropolis, because obviously something that's forgotten now that Metropolis has become so canonized is that Metropolis was a gigantic commercial flop for Lang and that there was resentment at the time that uh, Germany was struggling and he was throwing all this money at a science fiction movie, you know, and there's a little comment about uh, about that in the film, actually, where you see like, you know, decrepit posters of Metropolis in the background uh, at one point in the set the idea that like Lang would have to then do like just a, just a dumb spy movie, you know, the kind of idea that he's just going to like, all right, well, you don't want something that's like going to blow your tits off. Then, okay, I'm going to give you like just a, a straight up dumb good guy versus bad guy movie. And, but he can't not Fritz Lang it, you know, he can't not make it amazing. No, I was saying he only invented a genre in doing so. That's all like pretty much laying the tracks down for the next 30 years of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Literally laying down the tracks with that train scene. And the scene where he, you know, gets out of that persona and gets into his, you know, smoking jacket with his manservant there always makes me laugh. Like, it's so funny when he comes back to the to the hotel and does that. And it's very proto Bruce Wayne, too, you know, to like 
Okay, now back to my Playboy persona. The movie even um, pioneers the the blustery, exhausted boss of of the spy who's being pressured from above to you know stop these intelligence links and exhausted with the um, extravagant shenanigans of his best agent. So I, (laughs) there's just chief who's yeah yeah, who chews him out. Oh, that's that guy. Talk about a real face on screen. Uh, yeah. The act. It was a Scott. His name was Craigle Cher- uh, Sherry, I think. And I'm sure. I'm assuming that a lot of guys migrated to Berlin because it was this capital of film and theater at the time. But he's an Englishman, or a Brit, I should say, not an Englishman. I'll get killed for that if I mistake the two. Um, you never I went assume- up a mountain. Came down. No, that's. I assume that this guy did speak German and, you know, he, but he brought, he didn't look like everybody else. I kept looking at his face and saying, God damn, this guy looks like a haggis. It's like, what's the deal? Where do you find a man like this? And yeah, it turns out that he certainly, in my recollection, he looks like the first exaggerated chief pounding on his desk saying, Murtaugh Riggs in my office, get in here now. City Hall's got my balls in a sling. This thing goes all the way to the top. It's great. I also just kind of mentioned the uh, uh, Haji's uh, clown persona. Obviously, you think Octopussy, right, John? I mean, you think about, like, the spies yeah. dressed as clowns and that. And there's no way George McDonald Frazier, who we just talked about in a recent episode about uh, the Flashman novels, there's no way he didn't love spies. He's the one who, like, came up with the idea of Bond, you know, becoming a clown at the end of that. I mm-hmm. feel like it's definitely got to be, like, a direct influence. Yeah, and I would just have to assume that, you know, Fleming watched this movie. Just, you know, yeah, I'm going to number my agents in my book yeah and yeah. and have a very this is a blowfeld blueprint as well in in this film so yeah this is the, the many fingers of influence of of fritz lang it's incalculable the only like thing he had to do was say well instead of sending them to the room i'm going to send them to the piranha pool instead yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh john the other thing too is is that this you know we quickly jump into uh spying for the big one you know it, it, it becomes tradecraft between germany or the axis and the allies right after this so this is this is in that interregnum between the two wars the great war ended in 1917 and it wouldn't be until the 30s the mid-30s that world war ii really cranks it up we don't get into it obviously until pearl harbor but the english were fighting it and you know germany was about to be riven by national socialism and you know the, the downfall of the kaiser and all that stuff just coming right around the corner in the 19, early 1930s so, like, this is spying not necessarily with the idea of war and and secrets and um, you know preserving the sanctity of your borders and turning back evil. It is more like the corporate spying. I mean, I'm tipping my hand to like sneakers, which is going to come down the road, but it's almost like private entities squabbling with each other, looking for secrets to put people over the top. It's not necessarily national security, although there is some some bit of that. But, uh, you know, this is almost like a little bit of a naive period before we get into the serious shit with, you know, trying to find U-boat secrets and troop movements and uh, all those planes that were painted up in plywood in the middle of, um, you know, that were, you know, that you'd see from spy balloons and stuff like that. This is a this is a different type of spying altogether. Yeah, I mean, again, that's the question of like who the villain is in this. It's like it's a criminal organization of some kind. They they're doing bad stuff. They got to get shut down, for sure. But I think the kind of ubiquitous presence of this criminal syndicate predicts, you know, the kind of uh, villain that we will see later on in the movies, which is this thing that's just inherent and part of the system. The fact that they that they are the bank of Germany in this movie, you know, that they've got their fingers in like society is definitely ahead of its time 
And when I say he Fritz Langs this thing up, I think it's important because I don't think of spy movies as romances, even though I love the Bond movies and they're, you know, obviously have romantic uh, inclinations. I, I think more of spy movies as like annihilations of like romances. More often than not, it's the tragedy of spy movies is that severing that human connection, having that amorality means like you can't feel towards other people. You have no empathy towards. It's really the annihilation of empathy. And I think that Lang in this says that, you know, that's not a dead thing. Like he's very uncynical about it. The romance in this is that a female agent's going to fall in love right away with this male agent, that they're going to have this immediate connection. And then that is going to transcend their duties towards their respective agencies that like that connection. It's as big as his ideas in uh, Dine Blungen, you know, where it's like this woman loves this man so much that after he's killed, her revenge is going to destroy the world. Like literally she's going to kill everybody. That's how big her love is. And capital L love in this movie, you know, the, the connection between these characters for Lang is like, it's big enough to break down this, criminal syndicate and you know have everyone come out happily it's funny to have that and also have a subplot about you know the unfortunate you know kind of broken blossomy yellow face sort of uh japanese character akira matsumoto played by lupo pick who ends up committing uh, seppuku after this other uh, uh spy sent over by the bad guys um tricks him and you know reveals state secrets and of course, you know, Fritz Lang was loved suicide. There are three suicides in this film, technically, in total. And this ritual suicide, you know, comes off this film, Harry Carey, as well. The kind of alternative of, like, two people who actually find a legitimate connection and can uh, use that connection to, like, break out of this uh, insidious sort of life that they're part of. You know, the flip side of that is, like, you're ruined by it. Like, love can ruin you and it can be used against you, weaponized against you. I think is just like a great kind of counterbalance with this film and makes the romance not sappy, but like rather like something that really plays specifically against the more cynical, the more cynical kind of world of spying and espionage. Yeah. Because the, the female agent is being manipulated because of her love for her family and, and the past tragedies that, you know, the villain has like, dug up and then found out about her oh my and, god and the, his... the mom with the dirty knees i just i yeah. had that image in my head all day the dirty knees on the mom in the flashbacks i could mm -hmm. not get it out of my head and and so this like manipulation of like you know childhood pain uh because of the love she used to have um you know for that familiar familial connection you know it it, it is a testament to the yeah like you said the capital r romanticism of no i'm sorry not capital r romanticism of this film. um that the very thing that has brought her to the villain's power is able to sort of extricate her from it as well and the same thing for three two six and so I, I thought that was a nice sort of thematic closing of the loop yeah yeah it, like it it works with the big ideas of this movie again you know bad guys who throw trains to kill one guy you know it's like these all are huge huge giant stage big cinema ideas that are thrown to this movie the themes are huge they're potentially government toppling ideas i mean i absolutely adore this film it's it's amazing as bill was mentioning it came before all you know the, everything with world war ii and really predicted a lot of what was going to be happening and showed that that Lang and and uh, and they and everybody else involved with it really had an idea of like what a what a spy movie could be moving forward. 
Yeah, Long, and to some degree, doing his English language stuff in the in the 10 or 15 years after this, um, he, it looks like that scene in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves is fighting Hugo Weaving and almost like using one arm to do it because he just is so good by that point. He's like parrying Hugo Weaving and he <laughs> kicked him against the wall. Um, he had mostly, you know, done everything imaginable with the most maximalist of, of uh, tones in all this German stuff in the spy Weimar era to do stuff uh, for the English studios with, you know, Ray Moland coming up, things like that. Um, it 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 does seem much more direct, much more local, much more of a small scale. It can't possibly be as maximalist as his uh, Weimar era stuff, um, which is why it's like this is of a piece, even though there's very little of it that, it, you know, harkens back to Metropolis other than a reference or so. I mean, the style of a man who's used to dealing with these gigantic maximal tones is clearly that's a comfort. You know, it's like asking Michael Bay to make a Hall of Center movie. You know, he just can't do it. He can only work in one tone. He can't scale down. I mean, Fritz Long could scale down if he wanted to, but it's clear that he just, you know, had huge on his mind. He could make huge work. He made huge, not go off the tracks and veer into train, you know, train crash territory. And, you know, a part of that is using the romance warms up a lot of that Brechtian, uh, high contrast, cold, uh, uh, you know, analytical filmmaking. The, the, the acting, the, the, the expressionist acting of Rudolf Clyde Roga is offset by how warm uh, Gerda Maurus and 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 uh, uh, Billy Fritsch are to each other. You know, that's a beating heart that gives you something human in the middle of all these people acting, you know, like James Bond villains. You need the contrast there. Yeah, yeah. Not afraid to like have a love conquers all kind of theme because it really is something that can be huge in just the right way. And we'll be coming back to Lang, obviously, in the uh, next, in the following decades. But let's go ahead and move on to the 1930s when things are really starting to kick up in europe obviously things are changing in the world uh if we're going to talk about the 1930s obviously we have to talk about alfred hitchcock who was really you know the big master of spy movies of the 1930s he made the 39 steps in the same year he released secret agent and sabotage he released um the lady vanishes and then in 1940 there's foreign correspondent he is very much in the spy thriller game at this point in his career and we've never made like <laughs> make it a secret that the Pink Smoke were not huge Hitchcock fans, but I definitely respond more to kind of his straight up spy thrillers, I think, than sort of his later films, his uh, his murder mysteries and his crime movies. I um because I think you know it's something that was really happening in the world around him at the time, and it's something that he just kind of inherently was able to do well with. And the movie we're going to uh, talk about it again is one I hadn't seen before. It's The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. It deals with a British couple, Bob and Jill Lawrence, who are in Switzerland with their daughter, Betty. They befriend a, a Frenchman whose name is Louis Bernard, who gets shot dead while dancing with Jill at the hotel. With his dying breath, he whispers, MacGuffin! Or what the fuck ever, right? <laughs> he says, there's some spy thing that's going on that's going to lead Bob uh, off down this rabbit hole of conspiracy and, uh, and counter-espionage. Uh, the bad guys end up being this motley crew of weirdos headed by an extreme weirdo, uh, Mr. Abbott, played, of course, by the uh, the weirdo, the <laughs> professional weirdo, Peter Laurie. Uh, they end up kidnapping Betty to get this thing from him that they need. And it uh, comes down to like a big, giant, climatic shootout with the police. I'm going to go ahead and launch it straight off to uh, to you, Bill, and ask you what you thought of this one. Um, had you seen this one before? 
No, I haven't. Um, and I, I don't run deep with the Hitchcock either. I've maybe only seen about ten or twelve Hitchcocks myself, and okay. I've not seen I've not seen the remake of this either with, with Jimmy Stewart. Um, it's bad. But, uh, it's really bad. I, I, you know, I'm inclined to think just on sight alone. I really I really enjoyed this, and I kind of wonder how could he improve uh, this with you know with the, the thing he dropped on us. Like this, this to me was fairly watertight. I really enjoyed what I saw, and it's like you know Peter Lorre is for a guy who apparently was phonetically uh, doing his lines in English, I don't know how much truth there is because he was so charismatic. He doesn't seem to stumble over. There's nothing inarticulate about his performance. I know I heard the same thing about Antonio Banderas in, in Philadelphia apparently was doing his lines in, in phonetic English. Again, that was an incredible performance too. Maybe these guys are just that good that you don't notice that sort of thing. But um, I love this actor I'd never seen before, the lead, Leslie Banks. Leslie mm -hmm. Banks was apparently a real bona fide hero. He took one in the face back at the big one uh, somewhere on the continent. Um, he suffered severe facial scarring and nerve damage. And it took me a couple of minutes when I'm watching him. You know, I noticed that they were favoring his, um, I think it was the right side of his face, left side of his face. And, but, you know, you can't conceal that the entire time. Uh, and I paused the movie and I looked at his biograph biographical information and said, well, he endured some plastic surgery and he's one of those guys that came back and the, and the teens, you know, with maimed, he was maimed and disfigured as a lot of those young guys were, except he managed to get into movies and, you know, it does something to see a man with, you know, a, a slouching cheek and a sort of scarred eye socket on one side. It humanizes him in a way that you don't get to see that kind of real, I, I want to say imperfection. I don't think that's fair because that means that there's something imperfect about being a regular human being. It's, it's not, not that at all. You just don't get to see real faces. And maybe this is my kick against modern beauty and pulchritude casting, where I can't stand the way modern actors look like catalog models. There's nothing to it. Um, and seeing a guy like Leslie Banks, who is a fantastic actor. He acquits himself wonderfully in the part. And on top of that, has this pathos of this face that just has character baked into it. Uh, even though he's a, a fine suit wearing, Swiss ski vacation going, upper class man, it kind of roots it in a different form of reality where you don't just think this is Nick and Nora, you know, running around drinking martinis across the continent. There's something more human. It, you know, he loses his child for a while. He's chasing after his daughter. That's pretty much the mechanism of the, of the plot. But to watch this man do it is something else. It, you know, it just reminded me, you know, there's a dearth of faces in film like his that adds something to the performance. But I mean, um, I don't know if you want to get to the, what I think is the showstopper is the shootout scene at the end taken from real life. That was something that uh, Hitchcock encountered in his London of the 19 teens. I think it was, there was a real live shootout between anarchists where they just laid waste to a block. It's like, they were almost like an Al Qaeda sect hanging out in a shitty neighborhood in London. The police, they had this street battle where they were firing in the windows and they were exactly as it's pretty much pictured in this um, movie. It's so ambitious to go from this really jet setting kind of regal upper-class thing to what is essentially a, uh, of Stalingrad, you know, just building to building combat with police getting wiped out in the streets and guys getting dragged out as their bodies are laying across asphalt. I mean, this movie has it all. Just wait 15 minutes. It becomes a different experience each time. Yeah, I mean, I think that I agree with you that uh, Leslie Banks definitely carries, does a formidable job carrying the movie as long as he has to. I think up until that climax where it kind of becomes more about the villains, uh, I certainly like that he, you know, takes out the dentist having had extreme dental work recently i'm like very satisfying to see that happen uh, that whole sequence was uh was good for me um but it is interesting you know hitchcock when he was interviewed by Truffaut, 
you know, at one point said, you know, I, I guess, you know, a film is only as good as its villains. And Truffaut lit up, was like, oh, my God, that's it. You know, that's it. You know, the villains are the whole movie. And, you know, the villains of this movie, particularly uh, with Peter Laurie as their center, are interesting because they're they are so weird. Like they're such a weird bunch. They're a bunch of like like their 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 base is like the front of their base is like a sun worshiping cult of some sort, like a temple uh that the good guys stumble into. They apparently know hypnotism, like how to hypnotize people. Uh that's something like that kind of occultism in the villainy is gonna like, come up a lot, I think, in these movies. Uh the, the fear of the other, you know, someone who is like a weird sun worshiping, hypnotizing freak, you know, I think is a, like a real easy way uh to to signature a good uh, uh to put a stamp on a bad guy but in that end that big climax i think the kind of significant thing is that like you sympathize with them like they're really putting their they're shoved into a corner they're completely surrounded by police they're dying one at a time these kidnappers and murderers who have this you know uh plot to to assassinate uh this head of state you like suddenly sympathize with them in a weird way that i think is really successful during that sequence you guys agree? What do you think, John? Yeah, and I th- I think you know just the mechanics of the filmmaking of that shootout they're just so different from the way we experience action in movies today. It stays with these characters, especially the villains, as they're cowering behind when uh, under windows and behind doors, as the glass is shattering, as you know bullets are exploding in the walls next to them. They're you know hiding their faces from shrapnel and, and debris like we're forced to look at what it feels like to be shot at by a dozen police for you know minutes and that's gonna create sympathy with us even as they are you know trying to assassinate somebody and it's a really you know compelling sequence and just it was such a treat to be able to experience a shootout in a totally different way, one that forces us to, you know, empathize with with these characters. And, you know, any any movie that starts with a jolly Peter Lorre is gonna <laughs> take a take a turn pretty soon. But, you know, we're with this bereft father for so much of the film. And so for it to take such a turn and for us to be able to stick with the narrative, I think is you know a, a testament to how compelling this movie is you can't and, help but feeling bad for them after they think yeah. that their plot has succeeded and they're like celebrating together they're, they're like breaking out the champagne and it's like there are women you know as part of this you know group they they feel like i can't believe we did it you know it's not like yes the plan finally came together kind of like devious sort of thought it's like hey guys it worked i can't believe we actually came together and we guys we made it happen you know, uh, like you, you almost feel bad that they, they, that they failed to assassinate this guy who we don't know anything about. I mean, that's like the whole MacGuffin of this movie is like, it's just some guy they're going to kill. It's funny to hear, Bill, that this is a real thing that Hitchcock actually witnessed. You can't help wondering, but like, did he witness something like this and think to himself, I'd hate to be the one in the building getting shot at, you know, like, was the, like the terror for him really more like the good guys winning was like that, like actually a horrible thing for him to think about. Well, um, you know, you, you saying that their situation goes from one of exaltation and victory because they're waiting on the radio to hear that. What specific piano hit is that was a key mm-hmm. that would be the, that let them know there was a successful um, strike in that in that theater house. 
Um, it goes from a party pad to almost like the Branch Davidians, you know, where it's like, yeah. this is only going to end one way. You can't get out. You're trapped in this place. They, you know, you might wind up getting firebombed. It's going to burn from the bottom up. But it's like, this is a, a slow, painful death. Or Hitler's um, bunker, even, at the end of uh, yeah. too, you know? Yeah, that's true. There's something to that. And, and you know, like Johnny Arms said, there may be uh, an idea of trying to empathize with the people who are inside there. The other way of thinking about it is that it's, it could very well have been Hitchcock wanted to rub your nose in punishment. Um, you know, this was hmm. the, the, the whole idea of the social, the anarchists, you know, who, who wanted to take down pleasant English society. These were true scum of the earth. These were bad men who represented everything non-Western, you know, and and if, if you get a chance, people look at the poster for this because it's got Lore in a very uh, sort of heightened uh, illustrated image. It his image in that poster. Now, Peter Lorre was a Jewish Hungarian actor. That's why he fled to the he fled to Western Europe. But the image of Peter Lorre looks very much like the anti-Semitic posts that were circulating in Germany around the Weimar. Um, they except they made them almost like cadaverous, vampiric faces. But Peter Lorre is almost like the living embodiment of this um, Semitic other. These invaders from godless places, you know, the the, the worshippers of Baal, the, the Jews, that sort of thing. There's none of that's textual here. I'm just saying it's like Peter Lorre was almost no. You, you can't ignore Peter Lorre's foreignness. Yeah. In this yes film. exactly yeah yeah no i think i think that's why it's interesting that like maybe it's just more about me that i felt pity for him at the end i, I think because you do. they were also I, yeah. demonized in such a you know a very blatant kind of way yeah it's inextricable i yeah i mean you, you can't help but you know it's a modern sensibility it's so visceral you can't help but feel um sympathy for them because it's you're quite literally the bullets, like John says, are whizzing. They're pocking the plaster behind your head and smashing the windows and they're dying one by one. You know, uh, you're just watching your guys take bullets and you realize this is a suicide mission. There's no way out of here. It's it's a grimness that you really have to you know engage with. Yeah. Again, it might be yeah, like a, almost a modern kind of look at that, like, a you know, fear of police, you know, that, which is definitely a Hitchcock thing, you know, as much as the, you know, hero or heroine dangling from the ledge or being, you know, it, uh, in danger of falling from a high place it, which is what happens at the end of this film when the kidnapped daughter winds up on the roof uh, just the kind of uh, things that the cliches that we kind of expect from Hitchcock um, but to have this kind of like uh, sympathy for the villains was my big takeaway from the movie that I thought was really interesting and you know you, you, you enjoy things like uh, the the fact that uh, Jill showing up at the uh, performance and screaming is what you know shits, uh, makes the shooter miss his mark just as Peter Laurie uh, and his watch uh, screws her up when they're doing the clay uh, pigeon shooting competition at the beginning of the movie. Nice parallels there. I mean, it's like a, there's a definitely a masterful hand, uh, you know, at work at this film that you can't help appreciate, you know, even if you're not the biggest Hitchcock fan, which I definitely am not. Um, but, you know, and, and also to appreciate again, Hitchcock's just, you know, uh, the fact that he was in the spy game very much more than anybody during this period. And, came from you know certainly a country that was very much about to be invested in spy games specifically going into the war speaking of which uh michael powell is another filmmaker uh one of the great british filmmakers it's funny because some uh, on twitter recently someone was pointing out how orson wells was slamming hitchcock in his uh interviews with harry jaglum and i was like he's right on the money i'm with him i'm with orson and then the follow-up <laughs> was like also he hated powell and pressburg and it's like i'm out I'm out. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> You're nuts. Yeah. 
Anytime you agree with, your with an, anytime you agree with an Orson Welles opinion, there is another thing he says. The counter opinion that you're like, completely no, ludicrous. no, no, Orson, what are you fucking talking about? Absolutely. Um, but the second movie, our, 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 our alternate movie for the 1930s is The Spy in Black, uh, which is also called U-Boat 29 in the States, I believe. Uh, directed by Powell, written by Emmerich Pressburger, who was, you know, of course, going to be his um, cinematic counterpart. I got to enjoy this movie recently uh, during a big Powell and Pressburger uh, rewatch that was so enjoyable, man. I can't I can't recommend enough just like living with these films, going into the world of these filmmakers, these artists. It's just absolutely splendid. And Spy in Black is a really fun movie. It's set during World War One. It deals with uh, Captain Hart, played by the immortal Conrad Wiecht, uh, who is a German U-boat uh, commander who is ordered to lead a mission to attack the British fleet at Scapa Flow, which is a body of water in the Orkney Islands of Scotland. He sneaks onto one of the islands to obtain information about the positions of the British fleet. And uh, his contact there is a woman named Fräulein Teal, played by Valerie Hobson, who is masquerading as a schoolteacher new to the island. And their confidant is uh, this man, Commander Ashington, Sebastian Shaw, who is a disgraced naval commander who has agreed to work uh, with the Germans to make the, to pull this off. But they're double agents. They're double agents. They they are actually trying to trap him to get the U-boats into position so that they can then attack the German U-boats. So Hart uh, is now tasked not only with escaping once they you know he realizes that like you know they're onto him, but warning uh, his fleet to get away before they go they walk into this trap. So the whole second half of the movie becomes uh, this great kind of twist where he's suddenly, you know, not not the one who's trying to, uh, to create the trap, but the one who is trying to escape the trap. Uh, John, I know that you uh, enjoy this movie. Give us your thoughts on it. Yeah. You know, speaking of sympathizing with the other, you know, yeah. the protagonist <laughs> of this film is a is a German U-boat captain. And this is 1939. Now, this movie would be absolutely impossible a year later, you know, post Blitz. But it was fascinating to me to see a movie from an English perspective empathizing with, you know, the, these German characters. Because we meet this U-boat captain coming home from a long assignment, hoping to have some, you know, a normal meal after having, you know, sub food for however many weeks or months. And everything's gone. You know, he's he's basically given like cold carrots and water. Uh, as as his homecoming meal, and so going to England um, was initially exhausting because he thought he was home. But once he gets there, he's able to have real butter and all these sort of creature comforts that he had sort of forgotten existed. And you know, Conrad Veidt, as a human being, famously in 1933, uh, listed his race on his nazi registration as jewish just as you know a big fuck you to <laughs> to the nazis and him and his jewish wife got the hell out of there um and you know would play german characters in, in movies and so you know I immediately just sort of you, you can't help but be on his side you know because all the other characters are duplicitous and, and scheming and even though you know they're ostensibly the good guys it's hard to not to feel for this submarine captain and you know as a fan of navy movies as you know because we've talked about this before with, with my dad is this the earliest like 
sub-diving sequence in movies? Because we get like mm. the dive, 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 ahead two-thirds, right rudder sort of stuff in, in this film. And I, I can't think of an earlier example. That's a good question. I, I don't know how far back it goes uh, in the cinematic history, but that's interesting. It is really comforting to see him like fall into this domesticity once he gets on the island, you know, and like, oh, the alternative to war is like a regular life, you know, and like he has this yeah. immediate kind of connection with Valerie Hobson, which is like, I could I could live here. Like, you know, like I could, you know, uh, get used to not having to, you know, uh, spy on my enemy and uh, conspire to, to to destroy their fleet. Like this is definitely better, you know, like you kind of, uh, that sympathy for him is definitely kind of based on like, he's someone who would rather not be doing this. You know, yeah. he's someone who would rather like would prefer peace to war. He's not some kind of power hungry villain, um, you know. And, and the like, actual German spies he meets, he does not like. Right. Yeah. And so he's not even on their side, really. I hate to disagree with John, but I love this. It was great. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, this you you feel you instantly know that you're in different hands with Powell and Pressburger, even though Powell is the sole director on this one. Um, you know, I think that this is the beginning of the Archer's efforts, even though this isn't credited as an Archer's movie because it wasn't co-directed by the two of them. And, you know, the next one of his I'll see is, is Peeping Tom, which is what, the late 60s, uh, I think it was early 70s, early 60s. Um, you know, you you clearly know that there's a visual imprimatur to what the he slash they do. Um, and it starts off very early where this has a different kind of playfulness. There's an elegance to the visual language, everything that they do. You know, you don't have to question that at all. You're you're going to get that as, you know, that's just the chit that you buy in whether you when you when you watch a pal and Pressburger movie. Um and I, I just love that warming feeling. You you turn it on and you instantly feel like somebody's made a nice uh, cup of tea and they fluffed up your pillow and there's a fire going and a, and a book and a cravat and, and all those things. And you're just ready to go. This is exactly where you want to be and what you want to watch. But uh, I mean, I, I had such a reaction. I really haven't seen much of Vite before. Um, so this was really an experience of watching Vite at his best. And seeing the context of Vite, who, by the way, would die, what, only about five years later, six years later? I think he died in 43 before the war yeah. ended. The ultimate tragedy is that, you know, the guy was an emigre. He got the hell out of Germany, became an English citizen, died on the golf course in Los Angeles, did not get a chance to watch Germany reinvent itself and turn itself back into the country that he wanted to love, that he just was so angry at and furious. Um, you know, he he channels his he channels his his rage, he channels his uh, dyspepsia at his homeland with a really, I would say, healthy, completely well-rounded and mature performance as as Captain Ernst Hart. And you know, there's something that he does, his the level of modernity in his performance as an actor. Um you know, there, there's you watch these things that people do. You know, Sebastian Shaw, shout out to uh, Anakin Skywalker, by the way. This is the only other movie I've seen him in besides Return of the Jedi. Um, Sebastian Shaw is very much in that uh, Rex Harrison mold of the Englishman coming off the stage. And there's a, there's an elocution and there's a sort of, I forget what they call it, presentational acting, I think it is. It's not necessarily what will become known as the method out of New York, Clifford Odets and the public theater and all that stuff later on. Um, but there's something that Veit does, you know, Veit came out of the Weimar era Germany. He was a creature of the stage, made a billion silent films up to the point, uh, up to that point. But Veit is so sensual. Veit is so humane. Veit telegraphs things with quiet and body language. It's internalized in a way that other actors didn't do. And, you know, a little bit like watching Brando aside next to, next to like Carl Malden, not that 
one is better than the other, but you see there are two schools of acting in the same movie and it heightens the experience. Veidt is amazing in this film. Every single minute, you can't take your eyes off of it. You lose the track that he's a spy, that he's technically the bad guy because he's, it's not that they're trying to make excuses for him being a Nazi, quite to the contrary. You know, he's the enemy and he comes to Scotland to have, find out how to sink a fleet, put tons and tons of steel at the bottom of the Scapa Flow. You know, but there's still something about the way he inhabits the role. He can't help but be human about it, even as he's being honest about what he's out there to do, to, to you know, describe the Germans as war criminals, but then make his character into this, you know, romantic guy. You just can't believe the woman would not swoon over, or at least wouldn't swoon over larger than she does. Well, I hate to disagree with you, Bill, but I personally thought that they should have digitally replaced Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen in this film. Would have improved it. <laughs> Put the uh, dash on the, the divot on top of his head. Yeah, I get yeah. you. Uh, no, I, I think that there's a very strong point of identification in this film where, again, he's not a Nazi because it's World War One, but audiences are going to see him as a Nazi in 1939, obviously. But to the back to the point of like, well, who was the villain in this film? Like, who are we supposed to identify as the villain? It's it doesn't become about like this one's a German and this one is English. It really becomes like these are individual people who have like genuine like emotions and genuine like connections with each other that like makes you care about what happens to them while you're still like, hey, I'm glad that they intercepted this plot and, you know, we got on top of it and managed to trick the Germans uh, and use it to their advantage. It still becomes like, oh, my God, what have I done? I've, you know, I've uh, <laughs> I put my fleet in danger. You know, I put my like the people I work with, my coworkers, and then, of course, the delicious ending at the uh, twist ending where he ends up on the boat frees the other german prisoners and they take over the boat and he's trying to signal the fleet and his own u-boat sinks his boat i uh, just you know ah the, the irony don't get no better than that you know it's just like <laughs> god you can't you can't even uh it's hard to even like understand like who what, what are the sides again what are the lines supposed to be drawing here you just like yeah that sucks for that guy that's too bad <laughs> you know, and it's... and you know for england who, you know, has the greatest Navy the world has ever seen, for a, an English movie to have its villain, ostensibly, go down with the ship, like the epitome of... A heroic like, end. Yeah, yeah, a heroic British captain's, you know, final moments. Like, I think that says something about, you know, who we're supposed to care about in the, in the movie. No question. And the Pressburger and Powell, their, ne their very next movie in 1940 is another spy thriller called Contraband, which also star starred uh, Vect. And this time he's a Dutch freighter captain who just runs afoul of the Nazi spy ring operating in London. So he obviously gets to be unquestionably the good guy in this one. I mean, he's like the, the classic Hitchcock kind of, uh, you know, guy in the wrong place sort of guy. And once again, he has to try to save ships from getting blown up. Only this time it's American ships, neutral American ships that are uh, in danger. So he is unquestionably heroic, but I don't think contraband is as good as spy in black. I think spy in black plays with its subtleties in really interesting ways and challenges itself. It's like you said, John, it's just amazing that like they would release a film like this at this time with fight playing a German who is the hero of the movie. It's really interesting and it's, it's interesting, too, to compare them to Hitchcock, where I say I personally find like the Hitchcock spy movies more engaging than his later stuff. For Pal and Pressburger, this feels like, uh, you know, we're getting started. We're just getting started. Like, wait, just, just sit and wait. We're going to have some really amazing things coming up in, later in our career. It seems like 
a jumping off point for them. Like we're just kind of making genre films until we can really get into some serious stuff. Uh, as opposed to like Hitchcock, who's like, I'm going to genre films are going to be my thing. You know, like that's what yeah. I'm going to like stay in. But for them to so effortlessly make a fun and entertaining uh, and engaging film like this, when it's not even like them at the top of their game, I think is significant. So, but you know, the, the, the Parallel and Pressburger always have these performances as grace notes inside their movies where there's always something happening because of, uh, you know, something David Niven's doing in Stairway to Heaven, you know, uh, what, what, um, you know, what happens in Black Narcissus, you know, every single human face is interesting in a way that they weren't always. And like you said, maybe it's because guys like Hitchcock were really focused on the grinding gear works of the machinery around them. And, you know, the, the humans found their way through it in great performances, many, many, uh, many a case. I get the impression that this is it's all based on the humans first. It's like, you got to find the adventure in the human face and then you'll get to the grinding clockwork of what's happening around them. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I just, I'm going to sing Vite's praises one more time, uh, you know, in terms of like what Powell might manage to, there are three things that he does that all happen pretty quickly. Um, when he comes into, I think it was the hotel, um, I can't remember the name, uh, in, in Berlin, they're sitting down. He is in his leathers and he's got his adjutant with him and he hits this bank hit. They, they sit down, he slumps in the seat with exhaustion. And it's yeah. like, God damn, it's like, you really have not, he's wearing that fatigue and telling you that he's not, he just, he's not excited about going out somewhere next. There's a human body in the middle of that. That's just fatigued and exhausted. And then the next one is how excited he is over the butter, how he starts, he like cranes in and puts his face right above that English butter, that countryside Scottish butter. And he says, butter. And the woman corrects him. You know, Valerie Hobson says, butter. And he say, he looks at her and he says, butter, just to say, yes, I will start speaking English. And the, other, the third thing is that this is just completely me looking at an actor's performance, the small marginalia. He's pushing the dirty mud cake motorcycle up the stairs himself she says you have to stash your conveyance in your room you've got to keep it there can be no trace of it because no one can know that you're even here you're living at a garret like on Anne frank or something you just you're you've got to be a secret and so there's a scene where it's just he's pushing the the effort of an actor doing the work of pushing a motorcycle up interior stairs is human that's why when you drink coffee on film it's not an empty cup and you're pantomiming slurping fluid you put fucking beverage in the cup so you don't have to pretend that there is beverage in the cup and asking him to do something as human means that he's got this effort this is like he's like why am i pushing a motorcycle up the stairs i'm going to hide it next to my wash basin and that's exactly what he does and it's like you're there you have a motorcycle pushing up the stairs it's pitched up on one wheel next to your wash basin and it humanizes everything yeah, this is not a hero who's going to go and change from his, you know, dirty rags into a smoking jacket with his, you know, his <laughs> chauffeur next to him. He, he's definitely someone who's in, in the grim, in, in the grime at this point. So you definitely appreciate that. And even when, like, you know, the vicar shows up and, like, other, like, quaint little English characters kind of come into play in this thing. Like you said, you, you can't uh, get away from that, like, uh, the joy of, like, the human face that, like, Pal and Pressburger are so good at. Let's... Let's move on, guys. Let's go to the 1940s. Let's uh, get into Germany during the, uh, the the height of the war, which they're still making spy films. The first one we're going to talk about is Night Train to Munich, 1940, directed by Carol Reed, uh, which is set in September of 1939. Uh, Anna is the daughter of a Czech scientist who uh, she escapes from a concentration camp with the help of a fellow prisoner and dashing fellow uh, named Carl, played by uh, Paul Henreid and is reunited with her father in the UK. But 
Carl is a Gestapo agent. The entire escape was staged to lead the Nazis to him. And they they capture both of them, take them back to Germany uh, to force the scientists to develop uh, some new armor plating for their uh, tanks, their artillery, something like that. Fortunately, we got old Dickie Randall, reliable old Dickie Randall, a British agent working incognito as a seaside entertainer, just like Haji is a clown in Spiona. This is apparently a thing for spies and uh, uh, spy adjacent villains to have like this entertainer and persona that they can go on. Played, of course, by Rex Harrison, who gets to go full Nazi drag and infiltrate behind enemy lines undercover and uh, to get uh, to retrieve Anna and her dad. Uh, and that becomes the whole second half of the film is like his uh, rescue of them and their escape on the train uh, to get back to uh, England. Well, you know, I just got done watching again um, Third Man for this, which, you know, no one needs to tell you that it's one of the best films ever produced by human beings, carbon-based objects on any planet in, in any solar system anywhere. This this I felt book into the forties of like a Carol Reed spy movie in nineteen forty and forty nine. Right. Yeah. 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 I pre, mean, much different. Not pre, but during war and post war. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. I mean, this this is a much different thing. All told, it it has less on its mind than um less psychological on its mind certainly than than the third man does. This was okay. I mean, I I you know I think that it it could be that your running temperature depends on how much uh you can really get with Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison's one of those actors for me. Talk about a creature of the English stage. You know, that is the drilled in elocution and voice training. That is the, you know, very major of a modern major general. Like all, all that stuff. It's like in terms of being able to rattle off your crisp consonants and uh, be the most English actor imaginable. I can't extricate Rex Harrison from, from Henry Higgins myself. It's He's sort of rooted there. It's one of the most uber English things. And I don't have a problem with uber English things, but there there is a distance between me and that moment where those kind of Englishmen prowled the earth uh, with those sort of very English values and all those things. So in, in a way, it's like all the work that Conrad Veidt was able to do in terms of humanizing. I mean, this that's not on this movie's mind at all. This is very much the plot works. This is more dashing. This is more of an adventure. You know, Rex Harrison does not provide grit. He provides speed of elocution. He provides a tall, slender gentleman. Um, you know, he rarely is flappable, doesn't lose his cool, always has an answer. You know, he's he's who you'd want, especially, I guess, as an idealized spy, because it looks like he's always going to win the day. You know, even if, if things look really shitty on the train towards the end, he comes up with a harebrained scheme to get out from his Germans, you know, the handlers who are watching him. He literally gets out from underneath, you know, two armed men and somehow still makes up his way into a car later on. Um, I, I like Paul Henry in this movie. I don't know why the Germans are really uh, getting into my, you know, getting into my bloodstream. But Paul Henry does such a great job at the beginning as the infiltrator. <laughs> and then when he goes, you know, he goes, he is so charming and you kind of want him to be that good guy that you think. And then he is treacherous and, and takes back Margaret Lockwood and, um, you know, her dad back to uh, back to Berlin so they can spill their armor secrets. And you know, it's like he's almost as good as the bad guy. He's really an asshole as the bad guy, but just exactly the kind of counterpoint foil that we want to see Rex Harrison tangling with. I mean, for what it's worth, I, I really like the uh, gondola scene at the end. And, you know, as they're crossing over the border, talk about shades of um, Fear Eyes Only, right? Uh, sort of a, a Swiss airy. It's, it's, it's got that kind of feeling to it. Um, I really like the idea that the car, the gondolas are passing Moonraker. back and forth. Moonraker's got the gondola. Uh, oh, okay. Right, 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 right. Moonraker's got the gondola. Uh, oh, no, but is Topol has... Uh, Topol is in a... Um, 
He's in a high mountain area, right? In they're, they're, yeah, they're infiltrating the mountain and All he's right. going up in the basket. Yeah. yeah. Not the gun. Yeah, it's something like but that. But you're right. Yeah. It's a similar sort of idea. Yeah. 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 So I mean, I I this one had less for me than the other ones. It was it, it was very brisk, you know, it's only 90 minutes, it goes right by. But the, to see that they were capable of um, you know, there, there was sort of more depth than other films left this one feeling a little more superficial for me, uh, compared to, you know, say um uh this you know, spy war black, the spy who the spy in black. Yeah, I have to agree that this is probably the slightest of the movies that we've mentioned. You know, it, it came at a time when we were aware that Germany had concentration camps, but the public at large, hey, there's a whole PBS documentary about it, what we knew on what was going on in the Holocaust. But I think the public at large was not fully aware of what was happening in concentration camps. So we can still have a joke about how Rex Harrison singing is worse than anything going on in a concentration camp, which Jesus. Yeah. Uh, hits different um, <laughs> today. I think Rex Harrison is perfect as somebody who is pretending to be a, a, a toughed up Nazi. Like he he does that aristocratic buffoonery perfectly, but setting up a romance between him and Margaret Lockwood just doesn't fly for me. I mean, even Margaret Lockwood tells him if a woman ever loved you as much as you loved yourself, it would be the greatest romance in history, <laughs> like, which is a killer line and completely true, but also sort of undercuts any sort of romantic tension that we would see between the two characters. I think there's more romantic tension in the, like the one or two scenes that Paul Henry and Margaret Locke would have with each other b before we know He's, he's, a, he's an in yeah. infiltrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a film I wasn't aware of until you know Criterion Collection put it out, and it was like, oh, this is an important film. I guess I should watch it. And every time I come back to it, I've watched it two or three times now. Uh, I'm like, oh yeah, that one's really good, right? That's I remember that being really good. And I think it really, it's like I'm remembering that gondola climax, like which is really, really good. Everything before it is a little more staid for me. And Rex, speaking of, you know, we we're talking about a point of identification with uh, Conrad uh, Victor Spy in Black. It's funny that I think accidentally, I think completely unintentionally, because he is so unquestionably uh, a horrible fascist piece of shit, Paul Henry's character, I do side with only because Rex Harrison is so undefeatable in this movie. You know, he so effortlessly strolls in and manages to get away with whistling in a, an English tune by berating the guy and being like, oh, oh what? You know, American, do you know English tunes? Like, I'm going to get throw you into prison for that. He really plays up the um, the Germans being more concerned with like patriotism uh, than they are about like people infiltrating them, like military uh, strategy against them, which is you know fun. But like at the end, when he has that moment where he's trying to like like his, he's obviously he's failed, you know they they're they're free in Switzerland, they're away from uh, harm. He's failed his mission, and he's like, oh god, just let me kill Rex Harrison, please. Like let me just get one thing here one small victory i just need to bring him back here so i could shoot him in his stupid face and when he realized when he realizes he, he needs to, he's been shot and he needs to climb up to stop the you know to stop the gears again and he gives up is that like it's like the very last thing that happens in the movies paul henry's like you know what i'm done <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna accept my defeat i'm, I'm just gonna it's he beat me i just I've done everything I could, everything humanly possible. Everyone else loves this guy so much. I'm the only one who saw through this guy's immediately. And it's funny because it's like out of jealousy towards, you know, his affections towards Anna. 
but it's <laughs> he just gets so mad that everyone else is so immediately won over by Rex Harrison that you kind of like oh I've had that I've had like that like intense envy of some guy who's just effortlessly charming and like everyone loves him I I feel for him for that mm. so again I think that that's totally accidental <laughs> it's probably more of a personal thing but but like you said his his chemistry with her is so much more uh believable than it is with rex harrison and rex harrison like talks down to her so much you know is so condescending where she's like oh this guy who i love and he's immediately like oh he's a spy you fucking idiot like he just he just knows he's a guy who's just above everybody else in this movie and i think it's hard to like care about him for that reason you know because he's goddamn rex harrison and it's like he's gonna take care of himself he doesn't need my sympathy i think my favorite aspect of this movie is the way it satirizes the differences between german and english cultures so you know one of the best lines is dicky randall as a nazi <laughs> uh, saying freedom in germany is greatly advanced from freedom elsewhere it's properly organized and controlled by the state <laughs> and and then there's there's you some know, great lines in this yeah, movie for sure. like like this exchange that you know one german official has with another where he sort of mumbles under his breath like this is a fine country to live in what no i i meant this is a fine country to live in <laughs> yeah. like, that sort of you know interplay between people spying on each other within their own country and just the general attitude of Germans are obsessed with militarism and hypervigilance, whereas the British keep the stiff upper lip. We're still concerned about cricket. We're still concerned about pickled walnuts. Uh, things are going to be business as usual because life needs to stay the way it is. And I that actually struck me more than any part of the plot, really. Same. I think the moment where they're on the train and they're moving uh i can't remember what the exact piece of evidence the exact like symbolism is but like they realize that uh, the england has entered the war with germany uh and it really dawns on everybody at the same time like what that means and like how life is going to change and how you're not going to be able to play cricket you know just uh pretend like everything's fine anymore like things are definitely gonna shit just got real you know like i think that those moments are the most poignant ones in the film you know, there's something that it's outside the frame. We're kind of dancing around a little bit by talking about Conrad Veidt and, and, and Paul Henreid. It's the idea that, um, and this is a pin, I think we can put it in revisit, you know, in about 30 years or so, when we finally get down the road, is that the actors who were refugees slash expatriates coming from Germany from or or the Eastern Bloc, you know, Lorre coming from Hungary, guys coming from Austria-Hungary, that sort of thing, and doing English films, you know, it it imputes a lot of data having these actors come in and be German playing Germans in something that was ongoing at the time, you know, and this is revisited because there are guys from the iron curtain who come over and are in plenty of, uh, they're playing Russians and they were Lithuanians. They were Estonians. They were Belarusians. They were Poles, you know, they were Czechs. Sometimes they were Croats and stuff like that coming in and playing Russians, but you know, it, it's added information of the humans in these things. Like these are actors picking up work. I understand that this, this is a guild job. This is a paycheck. This is a trade like anything else, especially the English, English treat acting like a trade, no different than bricklaying or masonry or anything like that. But to, to get that, like, these are people who had firsthand information. They're, they're in 
do English language movies for a reason. They're not doing movies in Berlin. They're not doing, um, you know, Leni Riefen style propaganda. And the, the Russians would do the same thing, playing, um, you know, what's that guy's Ilya, uh, Ilya Kurikin? I can't remember the guy's name who's in all those movies in like the 80s. Um, there were so many of these actors. Again, they drag the spirit with them. It's like, well, now they're in America and they're in our movies and they're bringing this authenticity to them. But it's like also they can't really practice their trade in the countries they came from. There's a reason they're in the English speaking world. That is something else, a human story that these faces convey to me that not in every single movie, because, you know, but these two in particular have compelling performances by Germans who are not in Germany anymore for obvious reasons. And even Fritz Lang, you know, going to America and making American films, American spy films uh, after fleeing Nazi Germany, like all these uh, expatriates uh, forced to kind of you know, find a new home, a new career during this time, and then having things to say about, you know, what happens to them definitely, I think, gives it a, a huge, huge, um, gives a lot of weight. Speaking of which, let's move to our uh, alternative movie for the 40s, which is Ministry of Fear from 1944, Fritz Long, uh, again, in America, uh, making movies now. And it's a movie about Stephen Neal, played by Ray Milland, who's released after two years in an asylum during the Blitz, uh, he's waiting for a train to London. He's feeling a little social, so he heads to a village fate where there's a fortune teller who advises him to guess the weight of a prize cake, which is made of eggs, sugar, and a MacGuffin. <laughs> he wins the cake, and uh, before he knows it, everyone is after him to get what's inside of this cake. And uh, it's funny to kind of like get stalled on the plot at that point because I think my the, the main thing that's an inter important and interesting to talk about in this movie is that it is a fucking mess plot-wise. It runs into lots of empty avenues. It uh, has characters who appear and seem important and then completely disappear. It has characters killed off-screen and just mentioned casually. It's a Graham Greene novel that they uh, turned into a movie. Fritz Lang hated working on this movie because it was so controlled by the American studio. He didn't even have... Uh, say in casting or costumes or music or anything like that and certainly was barely able to like work out this plot like why does Ray Milland after the guy chasing him is blown up and the cake is seemingly destroyed why should he care why would he want to like investigate any further why wouldn't he want to get on with his life but he does because the plot needs him to he has to go and meet more people and it needs to kind of go from there but I think this film is great I think that uh, Fritz Lang worked against his confinements I think specifically not having like a, uh, a say in, in music is why that scene at the fate is so memorable because there is no music that the sound is so eerie that the main thing that Lang is great at is people being evil and devious and seeming completely unfriendly to someone who is coming back into society for the first time in two years into the most extreme scenario of like the world at war and uh, a terrified city where no one trusts each other. And that really is kind of like the main theme of spy movies that I think you can uh, take from most of these is this this lack of trust and this incredible fear of uh, the unknown and people who you don't know. Yeah, you know, I was just so taken with the way the movie looks. I, I mean, there's gorgeous movie. Like there's scenes and sets in this movie where Lang is just going full on German expressionism. And to, to bring that to a spy movie with the talent of somebody like Lang is, you know, just add a whole nother layer to, to, this, to this film. You know, the first time we meet Ray Milan, he's like sitting in a dark room, you know, his, his own shadow projected onto the back wall. He's, he's staring at a clock. 
like expressionless, wide-eyed, and like slowly gets up out of his chair. It's it's an incredibly disconcerting image for somebody who's gonna set off on a journey of personal freedom. Like we're just so immediately put off kilter. And then, you know, he goes to a village fate, which, you know, like you said, is more eerie than anything because of the way the events unfold. And he just sort of happens upon a, a palm reader who tells him his fortune. And then this weird exchange with him getting a cake and then the cake trying to be taken back. And, you know, it's one of these spy movies where does the plot matter? Like, that is one of the commonalities that I've noticed with watching a lot of these where a lot of them you can divide into two categories where the plot matters and what is the plot you know like it you know even with James Bond movies I think it took me like six times watching Octopussy to be able to explain to you what that movie is actually about <laughs> um, and so sometimes you kind of have to like forget what it's about and just enjoy for Fabergé eggs right that's my yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um and i just think ray Milland is so great at a guy who is put in a situation that he he did not account for like he's desperate man on the run uh ray Milland is absolutely perfect and you you know you, you buy his desperation um, he's sympathetic enough that you could understand why somebody would want to help him out. And I, I just found the labyrinthine turns the film takes into, you know, weird seances and booksellers and the psychoanalysts of Nazism. Um, it's, I think it's a fascinating journey, even if it isn't always coherent. Yeah. I mean, the first act of this is a David Lynch film. Like, it's just like, yeah, <laughs> fortune teller is telling him to guess the uh, weight of a cake and wandering off into an empty train that you know, and then getting blown up in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just like it just completely takes you by surprise. A and, blind man just digging his fingers through a cake. Yeah, yeah. Like what? It's nuts. It's totally <laughs> nuts. The blind man revealed to be you know a spy. I mean, there's it's such great use of like insidious like environment uh just really impressive and there's there's more flourishes of that throughout the film but it's just like every time they try to say like oh it's you know we're gonna explain all this it's like don't don't i'm in it i'm in like i don't need an explanation i think it's interesting they say the plot doesn't matter because that's definitely how i feel like i feel like just the the tone the feeling of this film like my immersion to this film is amazing and i don't need it spelled out although i have to say I do love the idea of a, uh, I'm a big fan of a bookstore uses a spy front, a tailor mm -hmm. shop. I'm more neutral on like, it seems like you'd be too busy hemming slacks all day. I don't think you get too much spy work done. Yeah. You know, I think it's amazing the work that uh, Ray Milland and Rosie Greer made in this movie, considering they had to be in the same collar for the entire, Oh, wait a second. Yeah. I have my notes here. This is not the thing with two heads. <laughs> this is a complete, I'm sorry. I, I, let me, let me redact myself. That's a whole different podcast. Ray Milland, by the way, the, the pride of Cardiff, Wales, if we didn't mention that our friends at Film 89 would get very angry because um, I, I didn't know Ray Milland was was uh, British, by the way, I just for years. He did, doesn't have that. His accent is so light. All those Welshmen, like Matthew Reese, you can barely tell where they come from. He's such a, I thought he was American. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's such a sturdy, square-jawed, 
I mean, you know, the thing is, it's like we, we uh, sitting here in Holland saying we, we in America do a great job minting and coining these action guys going way back, you know, and, and, you know, Ray Milan is an American, but he became famous in American movies, I guess. And he looks the part, you know, there's a vulnerability to him, like John was saying, sitting in that room because he begins the movie as a broken man. He, he, he volunteered, he voluntarily checked himself into a, a whose gal, a loony bin, a, a rubber ranch, if you will. And so he's apparently spent the last few years in Freudian therapy trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And that's laid out. It doesn't really add up to a whole lot, but it's this whole thing. It's like, well, he's not, he's shaky. He doesn't really, he's not coming at this. He's not playing with a full deck. And he's not the most confident of these square-jawed, tall, uh, upright leading men you, you will find. However, Ray, Ray Milan is nothing but uh, convincing in the role. Um, you know, like I, I didn't, really get stumbled over i didn't stumble over the fact i should say that it's clear they were just typing out pages of this before they would shoot for the day it's probably one of those productions where i'm sure they were revising it and making up scenes and streamlining things and adding needless complexity because that oh it's not working this is working let's go towards that direction so on and so forth as he's crawling around in a fucking bomb pit looking for fragments of a cake it's fucking weird i mean it's just not becoming behavior for an action hero to be and he finds a piece of cake with a you know fragmented note with your freaking MacGuffin in it. It's so damn strange. And the thing like the seance with Alan Napier in it, and that's you know the first time I'd see him before Cat People a bunch of years later. It's just so many strange things. Um, yeah, the, the occultism again. You know the seance sequence is like uh, the hypnotizing scene from Man Who Knew Too Much, where it's yeah. like occultism is connected with secret sex, conspiracies, normal people who behind closed doors are weird devil worshippers. You know, spy movies like love that they love like you know creating like it's not just like that they are uh politically and philosophically wrong they are just weirdos on top of it but that you know like you very much mentioned the potemkin village nature of that small english countryside uh fair you know those are normal people and it turns out they're all nazi'd out the ass right like that yeah. is <laughs> it's it's the village from the prisoner it is a uh, young goodman brown by nathaniel hawthorne it is it is a fraud of seemingly normal looking people weaponized for evil you know and that that gets you know that becomes as the movie rolls on it's like oh man, for the sake of one person too you know they're, yeah. they're all playing against yes. one person it's stage normalcy is only they all know what's going on they all know what they're yeah, doing you can't possibly uh, when you're in the scene it doesn't plug in as much as when later in the movie you're looking back saying jesus that was fucked up like that entire village was just all these frauds they were all nazi agents pretending to be normal people you know that is one of the you know it's a great potemkin village thing but I, well, there were a couple of gags in this movie that i thought were uh head and shoulders above other things now i know that the point wasn't to look at stunts and and uh you know set pieces like this but there's this bomb that goes off in the in the room towards the end of the movie and there are different, there are a couple of ways to cover this. You could just sort of have the, you know, guy ducks and there's sort of like the shaky camera and then you show the effects of it. Fucking Fritz Lang goes to the trouble of he rigged up this room. And I'm just basing this on by rewinding it, looking at the frame. Apparently every piece of furniture was hooked up by string. And all at once, all these grips yanked them to the same side. So they were, they, it looks like bomb blast pushed everything across the room. And it cuts really quickly. So you, you get the sense, you just see the beginning of the explosion. And then they cut to the charred room at the end. But it's really audacious. It's it's just for something you see for uh, quite literally a second and a half. Ray Milan is in the middle of this exploding room. It's fantastic. And it completely out of place. There's no reason to have that. I mean, the it's bomb so on the... It's great. It feels yeah. like the, the film slide itself is like shifting off, you know, like yes. the projector. 
It's yeah, incredible. Yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. It's like every now and then they're just little curly cues of genius that the guy couldn't help himself. And it's like, that didn't have to be here. And it's like, it kind of uh, upsets most everything else in the movie that that's so gimcrack inventive because the rest of the movie doesn't necessarily stand up to that level of, you know, just inventive filmmaking. There's a lot of good stuff. I'm just saying it's like the peak of what you can do. It's really, really inventive. God damn that Fritz Lang can't help himself but be a genius. No, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Uh, I think he definitely transcended the what he called like the sub Hitchcock material of the script. And this film is compelling from beginning to end. So like it's it's a great one. Uh, I like it more than Cloak and Dagger, the other spy movie he made during this decade, even though Cloak and Dagger is perfectly fine. It's a it's a it's a fun movie. It's kind of, you know, just a very simple like you get a lot of that Ray Milan sort of paranoia with Gary uh, Cooper kind of entering uh, enemy territory and feeling like everyone is looking at him, you know, when he checks into the hotel and it just seems like every like he's has a right to be paranoid and he should be, you know, he blows it. He totally blows his cover when he's there, but because he is more of like a standard sort of hero, he's like this, you know, good guy scientist who, uh, you know, is uh, infiltrating the bad guys. He's not Ray Milan. He's not someone who, we don't know about who was so mysterious in this film right from the get-go we don't know if he's a truly a murderer if he's truly a crazy person we feel uncertain of him for most of the film i think that really adds a lot to it there's another uh milan pursued spy movie the big clock that that was just such a great you know closed room suspense thriller Mm -hmm. I, i i don't think it was um as certainly not as visually inventive as ministry of fear but i think it's another movie where raymond land sort of carries the film with his charisma especially when he's um it that's a movie that feels like it's about an affair but was rewritten to make it seem like he was having an affair and a movie that really is improved by the presence of a great villain in charles lawton who plays just an absolutely detestable a magazine publisher uh, and anytime you just have charles lawton sitting in a room and being a bastard it's uh worth watching so yeah yeah uh For big sure. clock uh great cracking thriller but doesn't have the absolute weirdness of ministry of fear like ministry of fear has uh, makes it a point of pointing out that somebody pursuing ray Milland is like clipping his fingernails and so milan calls him our friend fingernails and just what is happening <laughs> in this moment john let me let me revisit cloak and dagger for just one second because i think you you know you you talked about cooper and i'd never seen this movie before um or we can just get out of this it's like cooper for me transmits absolutely no vulnerability whatsoever and i know that's a hallmark of that type of american presentational mid-century acting it's what he was famous for. He's quite literally the strong silent type, as Tony Soprano once called him. Um, you know, they're, they're, or unless he said Audie Murphy, I can't remember. But yeah, the, the thing is, it's like he kind of like neutered the movie for me because I couldn't just, you know, like, where's the weakness? He fucked up, but it's like, I still don't see any trace of humility in the guy. And and it's like, I don't think Gary Cooper really had that to give. It's like asking John, uh, you know, John Wayne for this, you know, humility performance. You're just not going to get that. And I'm not interested, as interested in watching that, in watching his thing as I am in seeing what Ray Milan could give out, which is why, you know, the movies, if you swap the places, if you put Ray Milan in Cloak and Dagger, I think I might have been a lot more warm to it just because it would have had a humane, you know, a man with an exposed nerve and his molar just who can actually feel the environment around him. It could get to him. And Gary Cooper just doesn't give you that. I do agree in that movie, Bill, um, but for, hey, Popcorn Eschaton, I recently watched um, 
this movie uh, called Friendly Persuasion where he plays a, a pacifist Quaker. And in that movie, it really did surprise me. He does show vulnerability because he's faced with like uh, an invading Confederate army and he has to choose between his pacifist beliefs or like, you know, defending his farm. Um, and so after seeing that, Gary Cooper, who is, you know, such this towering edifice of like good American values in this film, at least, you know, in 2023, he gives a speech about how why are we spending so much money on researching this bomb? Shouldn't we be spending this much money on like cancer research or, or feeding the poor? And so it was just very striking to see Gary Cooper say those words uh, to me, especially after recently watching this movie where he plays a pacifist, which is, you know, these are not things you generally associate with this, you know, the, the guy from High Noon. Gary Cooper is a, a nuclear physicist is, is, is as comfortable a fit as Denise Richards is a nuclear physicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't quite bring it as a scientist. But I, I do appreciate Cloak and Dagger for the Italian resistance characters. Yeah, who, and they I, were great. They were great, yeah, yes. Yeah, that was like a whole other movie where they're so desperate and tired and have had to make moral compromise after moral compromise to you know commit murder to defeat fascism and they're just so exhausted and here comes gary cooper gonna save the fucking day like who is this asshole so <laughs> that part i appreciated he had a rex harrison style uh, reaction to gary cooper in this movie yeah, it sounds yeah. like uh yeah i mean gary cooper definitely showed vulnerability in his later roles in the 50s like he's in a western spy movie called springfield rifle directed by andre de tote where he's mm -hmm. cashiered out of you know the military and then joins up with the bad guys but he's a secret you know he's a double agent constantly has to like compromise his morals uh during his undercover work and leading up to you know uh high noon where he uh, literally is everyone everyone is against him in that movie you know and that uh that that, that tried and true gary cooper heroism is definitely uh compromised in that film but uh but this time i think you guys are right i think you know gary's like definitely american hero you know no one's going to beat up gary cooper's no question he's going to come out on top uh milan gives a much more interesting performance uh and john there was another movie from the 40s that uh we watched that i know you'd want to talk about uh mask of demetrios much uh, walk us through that movie yeah so this was a real treat for me something i had 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 no knowledge of um and if you're a fan of character actors like this is the movie for you it, it's basically peter laurie and sydney greenstreet sydney greenstreet telling stories about demetrios to each other and so it's not the most action-packed movie of all time and i think that's hurt its reputation um since then like why it's been pretty much forgot forgotten at least you know from from my perspective um but and you know, the idea that Peter Lorre was reading his lines phonetically, I think, is absurd because he, he's in every scene in this movie that's not a flashback. Um, but it, it's about uh, Peter Lorre, who, Peter Lorre, who plays a, a writer, is trying to unravel the mystery of this nefarious spy, Demetrios. And he just sort of goes around Europe getting stories told to him about all the shady stuff. It's just great to see... Peter Laurie get to be the lead and and you know play with his buddy from Casablanca Sydney Greenstreet it's if if you're listening to Pink Smoke I'm assuming you have appreciation 
an appreciation for these kind of actors. So I highly recommend you you seek this movie out. He definitely like demonstrates sleepiness in this movie very well. Yeah. <laughs> when Sidney Greenstreet is like, hey, you and me are going to get together and find Demetrios and we're going to blackmail him. And he's like, I just want to go to sleep, really. I, I don't really want to. I'm I'm just a writer. I'm not an adventurer. I, I'm so tired right now. It made me feel tired watching the scene. Yeah. Like I hear you, man. I would just love it. like sleep is awesome. Peter Lorre, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, but this is an uh, interesting one to bring up, I think, because it is so forgotten. It's directed by uh, Jean. I'm not going to say this right at all. Uh, Negluzco, who you know is like a, a journeyman director who did like noirs and like a few comedies, and is never brought up as like an important director. But this is uh, based on a book by Eric Ambler, who's kind of a notable crime and uh, espionage thriller kind of writer. And I think it does a great job creating this mystique around Demetrios. He is like a symptom more than anything. You know, he really is this contaminating force, this corrupting entity in the movie where he's uh, we see him in flashback. And in particular, we see. Uh, there's this uh, Yugoslav government official who he tricks into gambling away all of his money into debt uh, and then says, well, okay, if you want me to help you out, you've got to give me these charts of minefields in return that he's going to turn around and sell. It absolutely ruins the guy who ends up, you know, uh, killing himself in disgrace after he's forced to do this. And then Demetrius turns around and steals the charts from his employers so he can sell them, you know, to the highest bidder. He is literally just like a the personification of like a morally repugnant guy that really personifies like what uh, the spy profession really is. And we'll get even more into when we talk about a, a certain uh, television series in the eighties that I think uh, is an early indication of like, this is the kind of guy like who we're really dealing with a guy who is just in for his own, his own gain and is mm -hmm. completely amoral, like 100% just awful. Uh, and the idea that like, Someone like Peter Lorre would be like, I find this guy fascinating. But like the more he learns about him, it's like, I want to stay a million miles away from this guy. I don't want to know this guy exists. I don't want to know these kind of things happen. Yeah, another another way for a movie to tell a spy story without making the main character a morally repugnant piece of trash. It's, we're, we, as a viewer, are discovering the awfulness of Demetrius along with the characters. And I, and I think... You know, the more you dig into what real spies do, the more you find yourself kind of disgusted by it. Yeah, Laurie becomes an audience surrogate in this movie. Like, he's yeah. the audience. He's the observer of, like, these things. And the more he finds out, the more he wants nothing to do with them. What, do you, what are your thoughts on Notorious? Let's talk about that oh, real quick. You know, I, um, I it's probably my favorite uh, Hitchcock. I think that and Re Rebecca. I, I just think it's it's where, you know, you, you have... Ingrid Bergman, you have Cary Grant, and you have these two performers who have such romantic chemistry, but their romance is broken and shattered and then, you know, repaired because of spying. And I think, especially considering the sexual politics of Hitchcock's later films, it's a movie that sympathizes with a woman who's forced to use her sexuality to, you know, to infiltrate, you know, Nazis. And we're supposed to sympathize with her. We sort of see the way that other characters view her as as repugnant. And, you know, I, I wish that Hitchcock had made more movies that sympathize with his female characters in, in such a, a humanistic way. Um, I, I don't know why he sort of wasn't able to do that in, in his later movies and certainly not in his life with people like Tippi Edren. 
Um, and you know, there's the the famous shot of like a crane going or a crane shot going down into a spoon of milk, just like it's it's sort of the the greatest combination of performers and also personally for me, Hitchcock's technical precision, which I think in a lot of his movies sort of dehumanizes them uh, for me. But here, because of the central performance for Ingmar Bergman and Claude Rains as another, hey, <laughs> sympathetic German, it, it just, it really stands out for me in, among both spy movies and Hitchcock's filmography. So let's move into the 50s. I was really curious about spy movies from the 50s. The main three ones I wanted to talk about, uh, I had never seen. They were completely new to me. I didn't really know what the flavor of the genre was in this decade. And I was struck by just researching the dearth of spy movies in the 1950s. It was interesting to think that like by the 50s, it was suffering an almost swashbuckler-esque kind of uh, drop in popularity. People didn't maybe didn't want cloak and dagger melodramas. They wanted spectacle. They wanted technicolor productions and historical dramas instead. That for some reason, following World War II, uh, there was a bit of a dip in um, in people's interest in this kind of movie. Supposedly, that most of the spy movies that came out were like real cheesy B movies coming out of like Europe, as opposed to like big american and and british uh productions and i'd kind of like to talk a little bit about why that is i mean even hitchcock is out of the espionage game at this point he uh of course does notorious in 1946 following that only one of his next 17 movies is a spy thriller uh the remake of men who knew too much you know and i don't want to be like you know a gatekeeper here and say i don't consider north by northwest a spy thriller but you know it's like uh, to me like those are a lot more like adventurous uh straight up thrillers than anything else uh, and he doesn't return to it until Torn Curtain and Topaz in the late 60s, which are two horribly dated garbage movies. So it's just kind of interesting that this genre really kind of gets left behind through this decade. And why does it come back in the 60s? James Bond! Because hey. they find a way to make it fun and adventurous again, right? It's uh, 1962 and 3. People want to see uh, this fun adventurer doing, having fun spy adventures. The three Again, the three movies that we're talking about, one is about a self-made spy, one is about a fictional spy, and one is about a spy who's dead. So I think that kind of like just tells you like how this decade has different takes on the classic uh, lead character in these movies. And the first one is a movie called Five Fingers, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. It came out in 1952. It was written by uh, Michael Wilson, Bill, our boy from uh, Planet of the Apes. You know, yeah. Where he would go on to become David Lean's boy. Yeah, was um, he credited or uncredited on this? I think he was actually credited, right? He, his name he was put back. Yeah, before he got blacklisted yeah uh, he actually did get credit for this movie okay um and in a lot of ways you know this is a forerunner to a lot of stuff we would know coming up it has a bernard uh, herman score before he became began his collaboration with hitchcock based on a true story about an albanian born british man uh a valet uh at the british embassy in ankara turkey during the war parts of it take place in istanbul as well which they um they identify as a uh, created for the convenience of spies during the war because uh, Turkey was neutral during the war for most of the war and flourished actually during the war because it had relationships, professional relationships with both the Axis and allied powers. The Germans couldn't invade because they needed them to, to build their munitions for them, more or less. There were too many materials taken out of Turkey they needed for the war effort, so they couldn't invade them. 
And the allies, they managed to strike up like a common ground with the allies because they refused to let the Germans uh, march the army through the country, you know, as a shortcut to other places. They weren't letting them use it as a ge uh, geographical strategic advantage. And because of that, the allies basically let them alone. They let them do whatever they want. So you get like this interesting cross of like good guys and bad guys in this very neutral territory right in the middle of the war. So it makes art immediately for like a compelling setting. And this guy, whose name is uh, Ulysses Delio, and he's codenamed um, Cicero, and he's playing this movie by James Mason. He describes the Germans as an Oxford aristocrat, or arrogant, spoiled, cynical, completely decadent, uh, which is terrific. And he describes himself as the best of a gentleman's gentleman. And he really sees himself that way. He's a guy who brought himself up from uh, nothing to just just by like personality and intelligence and skill alone has basically hobnobbed with these people who he can take advantage of he becomes a spy uh he offers his services to the germans in turkey uh, takes uh, photographs of plans at the embassy and he launders all of his money through uh this woman daniel uh Dero of uh you know uh earrings of madame de and films like that playing a french countess who's destitute after the death of her husband who he used to work for used to be her valet and now he's basically using her to uh to store all this money because he has plans to run off to rio he wants to be a self-made man in rio a true gentleman a rich man living in a beautiful house in rio and there's a point where the nazi uh his nazi handler even says to him like you must have some form of like sympathy towards our cause like you must have patriotism towards germany to want to do this and he just flat out tells him no nah, i just want to make money that's all i'm in for i have no compunction one way or another. I don't give a shit who wins the war. I want to come out of it as a self-made man. And that just makes him the most amazingly interesting, <laughs> total scumbag of a character. Yeah. Perfect, perfect role for for uh <laughs> for him to play, for James Mason to play. You know, Mason, as always, what did he say? You wanted to practice law, you wanted to come back to the real world. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, Mason is the star of any show. One thing it's... I've learned from the British, the importance of an exterior. <laughs> I found that uh, I have seen the best of Mason's work in the last three or four years, just by uh, viewing habits, post-pandemic, you know, peri-pandemic and post-pandemic. I've seen some things, Mason doing things that I just didn't uh, kind of know was in, you know, but with the, with the big high profile gigs that he's known for it's the smaller stuff off to the side like 11 harrow house it's just so many interesting little curlicues of what james mason can do i mean jesus uh what is it uh the pumpkin uh the pumpkin eater uh that he made with um there's a pinter a pinter adaptation with uh, uh and bancroft and bancroft getting the movie's great and he's so great in it jesus um yeah there's just he's dazzling he's dazzling i mean this this is you know joe mankowitz I mean, I don't. There's no way this would have been a lob job because it's like he had James Mason at the center of it. Whatever Mason did, he puts the movie on his back and just runs around with it. I don't remember, and you know, Michael Rennie. I've seen him in a bunch of movies. I don't remember what he did in this film. Uh, you know, his German handlers. Look, Ankara or whatever is standing in for Ankara. I forget where they actually shot this. Um, it's oh no, actually they did shoot a lot of this in uh istanbul i think there was some location footage that they did in that big shopping mall that souk i forget what it's called but so some of the second unit stuff was definitely shot on location you know that's the star of the show but mason gives this incredible performance and yes it's definitely a man who's interested in money but the psychology that mason just sort of lets escape 
from the reason why he wants a lot of money. It's not, of course, everybody wants money. Like Danny, uh, Danny DeVito said it in, uh, was it heist? Everybody, no, the score, uh, heist. He goes, of course, what is it? Everybody needs it. That's why they call it money. Of course he wants money, you know, but the thing is, it's like, he really was fainting for Daniel Dario's character, the countess, the entire time he was working as the Batman to the count. Uh, Batman was the other term for valet. Essentially the man who dressed him, puts out his jacket, you know, flattens his waistcoat, brushes his shoulders off to get, you know, it's that old school English stuff that the, I mean, continental, I guess, not only just English. So apparently he wants to have this gigantic stack of cash. He wants to woo this, uh, this lady who's essentially without a manner because Poland's been invaded. She doesn't, she, all she has is her title and he wants to take her to uh, Rio with him. And he just needs a lot of money to essentially impress this woman who's used to living well. He doesn't. That's the thing. He doesn't want to take her to Rio with him. He's like, he totally like has her under his thumb where he's like, Hey, if you want money, like you got to help me do this. Right. Um, right. But right, he's right, like, right, but right. this is my thing. You know, this is yeah. my, like, you're not part of my future plans. That's almost like possibly what turns her against him is that he's like, you're really nothing to me. I mean, you're, you're right. He has a motive beyond the money. And it's like, I want to, I am a better person. I know I'm a better person than any of these people that he has such a cynical, like look on the politics, on the uh, conflict, the global conflict, uh, he says things like, by informing a man about to be hanged of the size, location, and strength of the rope, you do not remove the hangman or the certainty of being hanged. That's like sure, an outlook yeah. that is, at this, like at, at one point, it's like he really has a fresh outlook on like things, but it's also so self-serving and condescending to anyone else in the world, completely unabashedly selfish, you know, and, and in his own man. So like he gets off on like, using these people against each other when he's you know forced to be a servant but really he feels like he's the master when he can take a former aristocrat and be like you know you're working for me babe you know <laughs> like you know you got to be content with uh with what i give you he yeah. has this like need for power uh which is funny because it has to be secret it has to be something that he's doing uh that can't be revealed until he's well away from all of this you know in his uh his mansion in rio I think that's yeah. why I find him so compelling. I was yeah. going to say, every time these Englishmen are questioning loudly, where's the damn leak coming from? Where's the leak coming from? And all of a sudden he walks into the room with like tea <laughs> and he just, he flounces <laughs> it in and out. It's so preposterous that at no point do they ever look at this, this meek, unassuming, you know, valet. This is like, what threat could he possibly be? Yeah. You know, at, at one point when I, I think it's the, the countess asks him, you know, where this cash is coming from. And he says it, it falls out of the change of the ambassador's pockets just like his absolute disdain for the people that he he's spent you know years of his life serving he's a man driven by spite really like he is selfish and he wants money but he wants to stick it to these aristocrats and show he's better than them he even has disdain for spying and spies because spies are notoriously poor businessmen most of them are professional patriots frustrated liberals or victims of blackmail and then all such cases the emotional involvement weakens their bargaining position. So that's part of what makes him such a dangerous operator. He's not motivated by patriotism and he's not being blackmailed because he has no past. He has no personality to the people that he's you know hiding from. He's, he's just about, he's just a servant. He's in the background, but he's devious enough to infiltrate the spaces between where he's able to get at valuable information. He's able to get the location of D-Day. Yeah. And and the, the week it's happening, but because people don't believe this information, 
the Germans aren't able to act upon it. And, and I think this movie does a really great job of an early example of showing what's going to be a theme of spy movies and also real intelligence services is internecine conflict within each country damaging their own in, intelligence services. So, and this really was at its peak inside Nazi Germany because there was just so much personal animosity be between the branches of government, the, the branches of the military, the individuals at their heads, that they were just constantly working against each other. And that's why we, frankly, were able to land on, on Normandy. But that's certainly going to rear its, its head later when we get to the conflicts between the FBI and the CIA, certainly with uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And in, in this instance, James Mason is able to take advantage of that because these Germans don't trust one another. Yeah, he, he recognizes the absurdity yeah. of the systems that are in place to fight this war and manipulates them. And it's so hilarious to see the Nazis get, you know, this information about like a shuttle bombing of like an oil field. And they're like, well, let's see if it happens before we know if we can trust this guy. And it's like, do you want to warn the guys in the oil field? Nah, why bother? And then it really happens. <laughs> you know, like it yeah. really does get bombed. And, uh, you know, obviously kind of like a funny thing is that they don't trust this information. That's a that's a that's a true to life thing where this real guy, uh, Lisa Bans, uh, Basna, his name was, gave up tons of information that, if relied upon, could have seriously compromised the Allied plans during the war, and the Nazis just didn't think he was legit enough. He did he did supply them with information about uh, D Day. It just it wasn't as specific as like the place and the date, but it was like enough information that they could have had like a jumping off point, and they just chose to ignore it because they weren't sure if they could trust him or not. So it's it's an interesting kind of different side where it's not like, you know, this guy comes in and like he retrieves information that's going to like save the war. Like it's going to win the war for like the good guys. It's like, here's a guy who is just so completely cynical about what's going on. And rightly so, like he appreciates the absurdity of the situation that he is able to almost effortlessly manipulate it to his own ends. Makes for a really compelling an interesting post-war kind of look at like what espionage is. Yeah, I think that uh, unfortunately the Hayes Code, almost like dictating at the very end, you get that rug pull in terms of the um, the Brazilian authorities coming and telling him that every single dollar of specie currency he brought with him in a suitcase was completely fabricated. It was just a German. What was it? To pound sterling that the Germans like the pounds, pretty much. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, that the Germans like made a paper mill out of. It was all counterfeit money. And he, he I guess it takes about a year or a couple of months. I forget how what the interval was, but he has established himself. He's wearing his white dinner jacket, as he said he would do, overlooking uh, the harbor of Rio. And, and you know, this this he, he self-actualized, as kids like to say. And then the rug pull at the very end is that um you know, he got fucked. You know, none of this was, it was all just based on lies and he was defrauded himself. They just produced, you know, bill after bill of, of pound sterling that was completely worthless. And, you know, he's sitting out there in penury now. And it's unfortunate because I really would have liked to have seen James Mason win. He just sits smug in his white dinner jacket, reinventing himself like Jake Gatsby, you know, just becoming a different guy. And, you know, with the idea that, yes, of course, the shitty stuff happened, but it's like, 
let's just imagine what he did in Rio with this, you know, this really hard scrabble way of getting there. And it's like he would have fit into this, you know, the society of post-war South America with all the, you know, the emigres to Uruguay and Paraguay and Argentina and Brazil. It was filled with a lot of rogues and it was a no man's land. That would yeah, have been fascinating. And the Nazi war criminals who escaped. Yes. You know, like they, that's very pointed like decision to have him. Uh, go to South America where like, yeah. you know, we, we're not saying this guy's not a villain, everybody, just for the record. I'll tell you, I watched the movie in fear of a different rug pull, which is that he was going to turn out to be a good guy, a double agent, that he was giving them this true information, these small things, because he was going to give them completely false information about D-Day. I was like, don't, please don't make that happen. I don't want that to be this character that would like just ruin this movie for me. So I was so so happy that that didn't end up happening and he was a scumbag throughout i will say the stuff about the counterfeit money is true to life though yeah. he actually the real guy attempted to buy a hotel in ankara after the war and got jailed because the money he used to buy it was counterfeit now i don't know if that's the money he got specifically for his spying efforts but that was actually a real thing that happened was like he got put in jail because he tried to like buy a hotel with all this fake money <laughs> So and as much I, as it is like a Hayes Code kind of like gotcha kind of moment, it is somewhat true to life anyway. And I do like how um, the inciting incident of his downfall sort of comes from letters written by the Countess in a really clever way to subvert all of his stories that makes it inevitable that he has to flee right now and so for her to get this revenge on him from a distance i thought was a a, a clever way to conform to the his goat yeah and to like break down like he doesn't have it all figured out because there's always going to be that factor you don't rely you know and it's going to be the woman it's going to be the romance you know like she's going to turn on you and he it, it, that's a fantastic moment where you know he, he he overhears them saying she fled town with all this money and he's got to maintain his exterior for these people, yeah. like not react to it. But you can tell just inside he's like destroyed. Like, you can't believe that this has happened. He has been not only has, you know, she run off and been like, oh, you're going to, you know, use me. I'm going to use you, sucker. You know, it's like he didn't have that power over her after all. Like she got the upper hand ultimately. And again, with that ending where, you know, he gets the counterfeit, the one reason that he laughs where he can kind of take delight in is that she's fucked too. Like all her money is fake too. She's also going to, uh, has reaped yeah. nothing from, from betraying him. So like, I think he kind of takes that at least as something that he has at the end of the movie. And as astonishing as James Mason is in this movie, uh, it is great to have Daniel Dario um, as a presence in the film. I, it's always a treat when sort of a superstar of foreign cinema comes to English language cinema and it just adds an ingredient that you wouldn't get otherwise. And I was really happy that, that she was there to play off against James she's Mason. So good. Just that yeah. opening scene where they approach where she's trying to like sell herself, you know, she's like, I could be a spy to people. And they're like, no, thanks. You know, like she feels completely valueless. Like she's a woman who was defined by her husband's position and now she's nothing that's a really interesting like take on that character. And she's just really good. Uh, this is such yeah. a good movie, man. I really was surprised that I hadn't heard more about it. Joseph Mankiewicz is a director who I always kind of like uh, comically think of like, I like his first movie and his last movie, <laughs> you know, like I like dragon wick and I like sleuth. I've never actually seen all about Eve. That's like a like, embarrassing blind spot for me. But for the most part, I don't usually think of him as like one of the great directors, but like, this is a really good film. I, I thought it was really he's good. got he's got it in him i mean all about eve nobody needs to stump for that movie but it's pretty remarkable yeah. for sure yeah 
Yeah, and you know, Michael Wilson as as the writer, yeah, like the, the dialogue is on fire yeah. in this film. It just cracks. Yeah, there's so much to love about Five Fingers. It is. There's so many great County Espionage is, is the highest form of gossip they tell her at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many great lines. Really, really uh, was surprised by how good this movie was. Checking back in with Carol Reed, 1959, the end of the decade, he uh, produces. Oh, and and with uh, uh, Graham Greene, who wrote um, this. Uh, they wrote. They they got together and uh, did uh, uh, the Third Man. Uh, they did uh, Our Man in Havana, which is uh, set in Cuba before the recent revolution. Uh, concerns James Wormold, played by Alec Guinness, who was a vacuum cleaner salesman recruited by a British Secret Service uh, agent to be his Havana operative and quickly realizes he's no good at this. He doesn't actually know how to be a spy. There are some comedic scenes where he like approaches men in, in bathrooms <laughs> to try to uh, enlist them as his, to recruit them as, as his operatives and uh, can't do it. And, but he likes the money that's coming in because he has a freakishly infantilized daughter who wants a horse. And so he, you know, wants to make her happy and like give her money. So, so he makes everything up. He, you know, lies about who his informants are. He draws a picture of a large vacuum cleaner and claims that it is a James Bond-esque doomsday device that they are building in Cuba. The communists are building in Cuba. And everyone buys it hook, line, and sinker uh, to his chagrin. You know, people start paying attention to him. You know, things go badly from there, as you can imagine. Uh, this is an outstanding cast. Alec Guinness, Burl Ives, uh, Maureen O'Hara. Noel Coward playing his contact is his handler, uh, Ralph Richardson as the head of the uh, the government over in London. There's so much cool stuff. It's shot in Havana about like two months after the overthrow of the Batista regime. So like it has that like great kind of location shooting. Uh, yeah, I, this was a real surprise uh, just because I have a very rigid expectation when I watched an Alec Guinness movie. I'm used to very stately performances. He is not quite uh rex harrison ish enough uh on that scale but he's certainly up there in terms of very english type uh stayed calm uh movies even in the ealing uh hill stuff that he would did like um lady killers which i think is my favorite Alec Guinness movie of, of them all i don't expect a lot of um fancy footwork and a lot of sh uh chicanery and, and and watching him make it up as he goes along but this was a surprise it's like i saw something different here than i would see for the rest of his career because he doesn't sound like the kind of dude selling uh vacuum cleaners at havana he's not the kind of expat looking for his fortune in a foreign city especially you know batista's um you know batista i, I don't know if this was set in Batista's uh, Cuba or if it was set in Castro's Cuba. It's definitely shot it's in Batista's. Castro's. It's before the recent revolution. Yeah. Right. So it's before the revolution. Yeah, I mean, it's relatively calm. There's some dark secret police stuff. And by the way, Ernie Kovacs playing against type as a Spanish uh, mustachio police officer. That's You don't expect that. You see that coming. Um, but yeah, Guinness is, you know, that's woe betide he who counts Guinness out because he's super interesting. Uh, the whole thing with the daughter and the horse I mean, he wanted money. That's enough for me. I don't need the daughter who does kind of a lightweight performance. And he wants to send her to finishing school in Switzerland. Hey, who doesn't? It's the best world for any of us. Not tell how old she was supposed to be because she yeah. acts like a teenager. But like she looks 35 on the street and, yeah. you know, the the guy wants to marry her. And it's like, how old is this character supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, she's like a high schooler. And like the, the one of the high schoolers from Christine, you don't know how old these people are actually supposed to be. It's kind of weird. But um 
Yeah, it, the surprise of him and then Burl Ives, of all things, playing like a Prussian with a German accent. It's like you don't expect the voice of the, the Frosty the Snowman to be able to dig an accent. It's like it's weird. He really gets into a character. He really does kind of a method thing, and he's he's vulnerable. And it's strange to watch this big, rotund man kind of like towards the end he's wearing his kaiser helmet and he's sort of falling back to all these uh you know uh, identity things it's like he's still serving germany because that's what he's left with it makes savannah out to be this sort of no man's land of you know competing influences there's americans there these english there you know something is about to happen you know watch godfather 2 to figure the rest out um but yeah, guinness you know, he's wearing the guillebert shirt and it, as much as he's like an a weird fit I really enjoyed seeing him go to the country club and wear flashy suits and change the way he dresses and change who he hangs out with. It's a comedy to some degree, or at least dark comic. And it doesn't seem like it's going to lean to that. And it, it it departs from that towards the end because there's deaths and there's treachery and there's deceit and there's, you know, real bummery type themes. But like in the middle of it, when you're watching him just completely, you know, run the house, just be a lying cheating bastard almost like a william h macy screwing up those um car uh, the car leases in fargo you know just like yeah i'll have those facts right out to you you know it's like how how you watch a guy commit fraud and not feel bad at all about it that's what the joy of watching guinness in this movie is like yeah i i really uh love guinness in this movie i think he's the the, the highlight for me there's something very tragic about the way he plays this character like there's just something sad behind his eyes where like something terrible happened to his wife who's not there you, you don't know what it is but i think with the performance that alec guinness gives in the moments where you know the plot isn't turning something happened that deeply affected him it deeply affected the relationship he has with his daughter in a way that i can believe that this tragedy that sort of looms over their lives okay maybe that's why she's in her mid-20s and re remains functionally a teenager because her father has been doting on her for the last decade, unable to move on from, you know, the tragedy of of their mother. And, you know, maybe I'm doing too much work for the movie, but um, but but I think that that's what keeps me in, in the film is 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 Guinness's uh, performance. I, I don't there's just a lot of jokes that don't work. For me, like there's not much that can hurt a comedy like a string of unfunny jokes. Um, and as much as like Bro Live is great, as much as I appreciate Ernie Kovacs as this legendarily brutal secret policeman who's trying to marry the main character's daughter, I as much as the, the jokes aren't funny, I also don't feel the menace that that brings. And so it, this is a movie that I always wish I liked more because I love the ingredients so much yeah yeah it's a balancing act that doesn't exactly pull it off i agree with you on that um and, and i also agree with you guys saying that alec guinness is fantastic and i really like carries the movie it's an interesting kind of combination of his earlier com comedic persona and the kind of deeper more dramatic roles that he you know became known for when i said that this is a you know a decade where the spy movie kind of faded out interestingly and there wasn't you would think there'd be like a lot of self-reflection after the war on this kind of genre. I think that that ended up being in the war genre rather than the spy genre, which is why we get the bridge on the river Kwai with Alec Guinness, you know, which is, you know, questions heroism and like, you know, allegiance and uh, complicity in, uh, you know, war atrocities and things like that. Uh, and then this movie, I think, you know, wants to be a fun, 
you know, romp with like, you know, like this is an absurd solution and it's an interesting kind of double feature with Five Fingers where it's like another character who is playing the system, you know, thinks he can play the system because they really are a bunch of absurd old men who are afraid of a vacuum cleaner, you know, like are really like put so much stake in uh, what's happening in other countries and want to control the situation and that he's able to, for a while, abuse that. And like Mason, you know, you know, all the hens come home to roost ultimately. John, you know, Noel Coward and Ralph Richardson playing those guys is also perfect too. Talk about English upon English upon English. Those are exactly the sort of ineffectual Etonians who just clearly are so obsessed with station. Uh, that's like some of those guys from Ipcrest file, you know, like they are just so English that they, 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 it is more important for them to behave properly than it is to do their job effectively or to do something underhanded, you know, or to, to sort of live in the world as it is. And that's why I think Noel Coward and Ralph Richardson doing those jobs is a lot of the comedy for me. I really, I'm watching them describe the, um, <laughs> the uh, vacuum cleaner pictures. Like that is a great yeah. light scene in the middle of this thing. Definitely. And even Noel Coward, when he recruits Guinness, the way he's like, uh, you're going to be, you know, zero zero five stroke one or whatever, like his ridiculous little system. He's like a kid playing a game. You know, he's completely absurd. It's a very satisfying moment when he's the only one who recognizes that it's a picture of a vacuum cleaner and starts getting worried, like, oh, I'm getting deep into something that's it's really because he's actually in the picture. There's a top hatted black right. guy with an umbrella who's in the picture. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think it's an interesting, you know, film for that time where things like Cuba were happening, that would be like a, a genuine threat to America, you know, in the next uh, beginning of the next decade where, uh, you know, the Cold War was really starting to heat up and like the initial reaction to it was like to make fun of it, you know, like don't don't pretend like it's a real thing that we're actually going to be concerned about uh, is kind of a funny take. One last note about Reed's direction. There are there, the great sequence, I think, in this one that is pure pure filmmaking uh, of, of that real vintage sort in the fifties is the poison food scene with the, the, the humdinger of the poison whiskey. Yeah. You're just watching the plate travel from hand to hand to hand. That's, I thought that was really uh, well executed. Yeah. Poor dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> the next movie, I don't think uh, you guys ended up watching. I watched it and I just kind of wanted to talk about it real quick uh, because I found it interesting is a movie called the man who never was uh, from 1956 directed by Ronald knee. I think knee is how you say his last name. Uh, but I've never checked into it. And this is a story about Operation Mincemeat, which we'll be talking about in part two as well. Uh, and Operation Mincemeat, for those who don't know, was um, basically a plan by the British government to acquisition and dress up a human cadaver as Major William Martin, RM, and dunk it into the sea near Spain with false papers that uh, um, claim that the Allies would be invading Europe from Sardinia and Greece rather than uh, from Sicily. And the idea was like, they'll find this and they'll treat it like real intelligence. They'll think this guy uh, crashed his plane in the ocean and that they lucked out by getting this. Uh, it's a real, which is a real thing. It really happened uh, and it was really genuinely successful. So I, it's interesting to have this because the movie is very quiet. The biggest action in this movie is like a suspenseful moment where there is specifically no action. Like the big climax comes down to like, should we go and arrest this spy who's going to unravel this plot, who's going to like uh, um, unmask the plot and totally screw everything, all of our efforts up. And they're like, don't go arrest him because that's exactly what he wants. So it's specifically no action happening. It's really all just like putting together this plan, kind of trying to second, like predict what the Germans will think to kind of second guess, like how this intelligence is going to affect the plan. 
and when the germans first get it like the guys a guy is like this is complete bullshit like i don't believe this at all and the guy's like well hitler believes it he says that god handed him it to him because like, i don't think god hands you an enemy's plan that's not my belief like it's an interesting film to come out at the time a lot like five fingers which has this whole prologue opening that's like this is something we discovered after the war like this is a crazy story that was kept secret until now it's very reflective of like, here's something that you probably didn't know about. The lieutenant commander who's in charge really genuinely struggles with like the morality of like taking a man's body and, and dumping it into the sea to, you know, for the war effort and what that means. And Gloria Graham has a small part as uh, this woman who, uh, you know, is like a love struck young woman who loves these soldiers and is just destroyed by them going to, to, to you know be massively slaughtered in this conflict Stephen boyd shows up as like this irish double agent for the germans who's trying to expose that this guy never existed Stephen boyd uh much like conrad vict would die of a massive heart attack on a golf course stay away from golf courses everybody apparently <laughs> bing crosby died on a golf course like just stay away don't don't it's not that fun i guarantee it's not that good i also love that this title is an obvious play on the man who knew too much and how many of these spy movies focus on anonymity specifically the spy who came in from the gold the macintosh man the marathon man whatever it's like you know you're kind of relegated in these movies to like an entity more than a human being even uh you know condor the nickname you know kind of relegates uh robert redford we'll talk later on to being you know uh something that's just on paper and not like an actual living human being so for me this was a really interesting film it's not a great film it's not like a film i would recommend everyone go up front out and see but it's its reflection is interesting for this period when again they felt like for whatever reason if it was that communism as you know infiltrating the uh democratic world was such a concern and a genuine threat in the american eye that they didn't want to know about they want to uh, get entertained by the idea that this is what's happening that there was some kind of secret thing going on i think this is like well what if what if spying was a good thing you know what if like we could be used well without hurting people except for the you know the bad guys except for like aiding like in our effort i don't know it's it's interesting and i, I just wanted to bring it up real quick John, did you ever go and look at the pictures of uh, Martin as he actually looked? There is a photo. Oh, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty gruesome. I mean, in the later version that we did watch uh, from the from just last year or two years ago, um, they did a pretty good job of dressing up an actor to look like a cadaver. But like the actual guy they threw into the sea was pretty shabby looking. Uh, <laughs> he didn't really survive. He really didn't survive too long, and he looked like a yeah, like mincemeat quite literally while he's on the gurney dressed up in an officer's clothing. But anyway, if you guys are interested, there the photo is on 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 Google. Take a look; it's it's out there. I'm, I'm sure it's gruesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffice it to days say, in the sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the science of the of the thing is interesting too. Just like how they like preserved the body right until the moment where they dropped it off. How they had to find someone who died specifically of pneumonia. Uh, so it, he could, you know, convincingly look like he had drowned. There's a lot of interesting. So it's a really interesting real life story, and and everything with the spy, with the Stephen Boyd spy at the end, is made up for the movie. But it's it's compelling stuff. It's fun. And the last movie from the '50s we'll talk about real quick came at. I, I kind of think of it more of as, as a carryover from the '40s. It has that kind of uh, more of a '40s kind of tone to it, and is definitely nothing like these other three movies we're talking about. But it's Sam Fuller's Pickup on South Street which deals with communist spies operating in New York, a pickpocket who steals a MacGuffin out of the purse of this woman, shows why you probably shouldn't delegate your spy duties to your ex-girlfriend, just, you know, FYI. It's just kind of a pop boiler set in New York, uh, kind of predates some of the 70s stuff we're going to be talking about. 
uh and then at the center of it has you know Thelma Ritter as in this fantastic performance like the great Thelma Ritter obviously as this professional informant for the cops who gets kind of wrapped up in this thing yeah you know this is um this is the first time I've I've seen this film in in preparation for this podcast so so that was a, a real treat yeah uh Richard Rudmark always fantastic it real fun watching this absolute scumbag who lives at the very end of the other side of the tracks just like in the shackiest of shacks where he hides stuff in in the water that's you know probably incredibly filthy to to keep it cold like just the idea of bringing out a beer out of new york harbor just fills me with utter (laughs) disgust um but yeah it's it's driven by some great performances um really brings humanity out of these you know pretty deplorable characters who find themselves wrapped up in you know spy games so it it is interesting how you know this movie positions people you already find morally repugnant puts them in the trajectory of events grander than they are and then through that we come to sympathize with them as opposed to something like ministry of fear where we immediately sympathize with somebody like raymond land and and are able to follow that person through the spy craft you know i think that it's this is talk about a sam fuller difference a director like him making a movie like this and you know he's less a classicist and more of the kind of guy that even though his 70s and 60s output isn't as great as his 50s output it's almost like his work had a uh, a moral home in that kind of gray complex filmmaking that would come later on. Not to say that Fuller didn't make movies, you know, that were interesting in the sixties and seventies, but it, this communist and here are the communists, you know, here we go. This is happening inside New York city on the subway. They're communists running around. They're stealing from a purse. It's all the stuff that they've been loath to talk about that, you know, that the frost of the HUAC uh descended on um storytelling and dissuaded people from talking about communist spy and and here it is storytelling with communist spies the exact same thing that people were kind of loath to get into and fuller's moral complexity and fuller's decision to take this entire heavy apparatus that has all these elements of potential heroism and, and national security and cold war and it's Balanced on the fulcrum of Dick Widmark's slimy son of a bitch, low-level gangster, sweaty bastard, who's angry at everybody and everything, completely nihilistic, you know, in only the way that, you know, Dick Widmark could himself do on screen. Just, he was almost better at that than anybody else. And there's a line that Gene Peters, and Gene Peters is scorching in this one, and they're kind of peas in a pod. They're almost going through the same transformation in terms of psychology, and that's, again, what I think Fuller does in this movie that is way more interesting than the communist angles and the spycraft and the tradecraft and the hero, criminal justice and that shit. Gene Peters is, like, arguing for Widmark's life or his worthiness with the uh, detective. And she says, and the line is to to the effect of, there's something noble trying to crawl out of that slime, something like that, saying that what you're watching is a different consciousness or some sort of entity be birthed from Richard Widmark. This guy who clearly would stick you with a knife in the shoulder, uh, in the ribs, or he would steal it from you and not think twice of it. Completely amoral, completely immoral, not amoral, immoral. And yet there's this thing that's like approaching humanity. 
And that's super fascinating. And that's why it's like, it's not about the damn spies. It's not about, what was it? Richard Kiley was playing the, the, the greasy communist guy who's again sending his girlfriend out to do the dirty work. It's like, well, you screwed up. Now you have to fix it. It's watching a cat and mouse of Widmark like cough and mash Gene Peters. And Gene Peters keeps coming back to him because she just sees this like, oh my God, he's going to turn into a human being. He's going to grow morals. He's actually going to be, become a real, a real person from the middle of all this. That's why this, this movie's fascinating. It seems like such an aberrant thing for the for the for the early 50s. Definitely. I mean, you could do a whole separate, you know, podcast or article about Fuller's take on like the morality of his uh, heroes. I mean, he started his career with a movie about the guy who killed Jesse James and like tried to find like what motivated him to do that. Like there must have been a reason is this this is not just some, you know, faceless murderer. He's a real person. I'm interested in that. And all of his characters have uh, that kind of like rage with inside of inside of them. Like I'm I, I feel like I'm a bad person, but like maybe there is a good person in there and coming, you know, I mean, not even five years divorced from his service in the war, you know gives him a very you know really interesting outlook i think on human nature and um as far as like patriotism goes he's definitely more than qualified to say there is a greater threat uh than a guy who's kind of a kind of a thief and a scumbag you know like there's a bigger issue out there and if he opposes that then he's a good guy in my opinion and it's a very naked kind of patriotism uh that i i only appreciate in sam fuller i think you know like Usually that kind of thing comes off very jejun and like other films where it's or, or sentimental. And I I feel like Sam Fuller believes that. I feel like he believes in Richard Woodmark in this film and believes in America in a way that it's like, I'm with you. I am definitely with you on this. So again, it, it still feels like it's coming off like, you know, uh, a wartime sentiment, even though it deals with specifically, you know, communist spies and uh, moving into the Cold War. It still feels like, going all the way back to Fritz Lahn to, to spies where it's like there are good guys and bad guys and I'm going to work on defining them in the current atmosphere like I feel like there are definitely lines to be drawn even when the morals are a little more hazy I did find it interesting how you know Gene Peters and Richard Woodmark do betray each other's confidence frequently in the film and I, I, I just thought that oh you know just like spies betray each other constantly in their intelligence work these two people before they you know, finally find each other are just lying and be betraying each other uh, throughout the course of the movie. So, you know, as as much as spies take on false identities, these two people are living false lives when they can't face the emotional connection that they have for one another. But they're looking for the honesty in each other. That's yeah, interesting because yeah, yeah. it's like a completely different take than Lang, for example, where it's like love is there and it's evident and you know if you accept it you can conquer anything and here it's like no they got to dig in to find that love they got to like make it work more than like a hitchcock like, like like notorious it's even more like it's not like duty is getting in the way of them being in love it's like they're there and they could be in love if they want but like they can't recognize it in each other exactly. You have like to they, you have to invent themselves. the concept of love to yeah. to fall into it because yeah. Widmar clearly has never known the touch of love. He wasn't hugged. I mean, this is a real scumbag, a real son of a bitch, you know. And you you read it honestly coming off of the guy in waves. And again, I can't say enough. Thelma Ritter so fucking good. In this Fantastic, movie. just the best. So that's the fifties. Uh, again, I don't know. I have done enough research, I think, to like understand why spy movies weren't quite as much in demand except that maybe people were just, you know, still recovering from the war and still like 
were more interested in escapism than anything that was going to hinge on like let's talk about what happened you know during that conflict and like the people who were lost and things like that but the films that came out that were interested in that are all very interesting so i think that the 50s turned out to be a really interesting era even though there weren't as many spy movies as in the heyday in the 30s and 40s and not as many as they are in the 60s which again is when bond breaks out when adventure is on the table again when we can all like you know have our cheap you know entertainment and and not feel horribly guilty about it i picked the wrong movie i think as like the one like the main one to talk about but we'll get into that i completely until like a few days ago i was like i should have put picked the manchurian candidate i think i stayed away from it because for one thing it's a movie i know so well that it almost is its own thing i don't think of it as like it's a spy movie i think of like is the manchurian candidate you know it's so ingrained in my brain as a unique and kind of lightning in a bottle sort of thing it feels like it's out of genre it's such a strange and unique artwork by john frankenheimer that i didn't even think of it like that's a good that's a classic spy movie it's like that's that's what it is it's it's crazy it's a film you know it's of course a film about a young uh uprising politician who is like a kennedy surrogate who was a war hero and you know comes back to america and is uh basically being groomed for high office in america you know high political office he's going to become president and he's been he's a tool he's been brainwashed by a communist agency in korea to be a tool and we learn more about who's involved as it goes on it becomes more and more of a very depressing scenario um i and the fact that this movie was made a year before kennedy was shot it blows my mind <laughs> that was a terrible that was not meant to be a pun that was not meant to be a pun uh, but I find it shocking that like I consider the JFK consider well I everybody considers the JFK cons- assassination a huge cultural turning point in uh, in attitudes and in culture, and this film feels like a response to that. But it came out a year before it happened. It seems crazy to me. But you guys have seen the Manchurian Candidate. Was I should I pick this one for the main one of the '60s? Was I totally wrong? I almost consider it more of a, a horror movie. Honestly, it's, that's the other thing. It's almost more oh, of yeah. a horror movie than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just the loss of, of identity, the the ability for nefarious forces to just implant themselves inside your brain, you know, bordering on the level of being possessed. I mean, you're you're forced to watch Shaw go from being somebody who is divorced from his emotions, from his humanity, and then finds love and finds his own humanity through this daughter of his enemy. And then be forced to murder her and murder her father. Like when he, when, spoiler, sorry, but when Shaw shoots his fiance and her father towards the end of the film, I think that is in the running for the darkest moment in 60s cinema. Like it's just so despairing. And then we're not even done. We gotta, we gotta have the assassination and we gotta watch Frank Sinatra fail really in in his duties and it's just such a bleak picture of what post-war prosperity has cost america's soul like with this seven days in may and and seconds frankenheimer is really forcing the audience to look at what america is becoming and, and what this post-war boom is is doing to us and it's it's terrifying 
you know, there's certainly less spycraft and fun shenanigans in this film than in a James Bond movie. But it's also one that, you know, directly addresses PTSD, which movies certainly weren't tackling. Sinatra's character is somebody who is suffering terribly. You know, he's piling stacks of book books in his apartment and when somebody asks him what's he what is he doing he says i'm oh they're a good cover for against bullets like he's he's still in the psychology of somebody hiding from enemy attack and who is crowding his psychology with books so he doesn't have to think anymore it's, it's an, an, an incredible movie yeah, I can't add much more than what John says. I mean, I have become a giant fan of Frankenheimer. And John, to what you said at the top, in terms of it's an artwork by Frankenheimer, it does feel less like a genre movie of a spy thing and more of a piece with all of the movies that Frankenheimer, uh, I don't think that there's too many soft efforts all the way through going up to the 90s. I mean, this guy produced- insane run for him. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at something like the 52, uh, 52 pickup, man. It's like he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it in all sorts of genres. He went up, he went down, he made movies like Ronin. Uh, he's just really exciting. It's like Borman. You know, he kind of did everything, anything he put his mind to, he kind of made interesting. So it's not a surprise. Actually, the biggest surprise here is that Henry Silva could play North Korean. Like he, he's the guy, where is he from Brooklyn or the Bronx? And, and I think he's a Spanish guy and somehow he's, he's creepy, twisted, bony face you're supposed to buy that he's North Korean and it doesn't, it doesn't sink the movie. Uh, yeah. But this is Frank Sinatra's best uh, performance. Uh, Lawrence Harvey is great. Angela Lansbury completely playing against type. Oof. I mean, this is one of those things where people refer to it in a weird, like humorous way, but she becomes teacups and, you know, Disney movies and bed knobs and broomsticks and all that shit later on, which is what she's more known for. And, and solving crimes up in New Hampshire, Vermont, Bane. I forget where that show, show took place. Um, but yeah, there's there's a real sort of dead-eyed look to it all. Um, just a, a great 60s movie. Yeah, I think John, I think John really said it way better than I could. Right after Lansbury passed away, uh, my mom uh, was like, oh, I watched The Manchurian Candidate for the first time, you know, just to, in tribute to her. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, what'd you think? She was like, oh, I didn't like it. She's like, it was too weird. And I think it just speaks to like a 60-year-old film still being able to be weird for people, too weird to enjoy. <laughs> that that's an artwork right there you know yeah. and and as john was saying about you know the perception of like people after the war just uh and again this is something i usually think of as being like post assassination of the president this idea of like promoting people in society as the kindest warmest bravest most wonderful human being you've ever known is something that is like you know a very american sentiment it's a very like american uh pr stunt uh, it's what politics is. And a lot of this movie is trying to break that down, trying to like call it out and say it's terrible. It's really a movie about murdering your parents. It's a movie about striking out against authority. That's a very 60s sentiment. You're never going to find a movie that is more aware of the faceless evil insidiousness of spy work than this one is. So if I had it to do over again, and we just talked about it, so it's fine. Yeah. I would have said this is the one we should talk about. There's also so many other layers of weirdness that you pick up from repeated viewings. Like when somebody looks at a, a, a newspaper, one of the, you know, like chaff headlines that you're not supposed to pay attention to is Hurricane Devitz Devastates Midwest. Like what reality are we in? Like I, I, I don't think that just like 
a projection designer having a little fun, I think those sorts of reality breaking details are very much on purpose. You know, like why is the daughter in a, a plain card costume after that's been revealed to be <laughs> the, the the trigger for his his operational hypnosis? Like, there's just so much strange, inexplicable strangeness in the film that you know, like you said, holds true to the to this day. Absolutely, it's it's the one I should have picked. The one I picked ultimately is Charade by Stanley Donnan from 1963. I mainly picked it because I'd never seen it. It's another one of my embarrassing blind spots. Uh, and I <laughs> will talk about why I think I, I I kind of ignored it for a while. But the plot is Reggie Lambert, played by Audrey Hepburn, finds out her estranged husband was murdered and that he worked for the OSS during World War II, during which time he stole $250,000 in gold meant for the French Resistance and then double-crossed his three partners. And post-mortem, they have come back to collect. The three partners are James Coburn, George Kennedy and Ned Glass and Reggie uh, Audrey Hepburn is helped out by Cary Grant. Come, well, he comes and says he's there to help her, but his allegiance is never is always wavering in her mind. She's not sure if she can trust him. She knows she loves him, though. This, John, was this the first uh, view for you as well? Yeah, it was. Um, and it was an absolute delight. Uh, it's certainly not as thematically deep as the Manchurian Candidate, but you get to see a couple of movie stars romance each other stab each other in in the back but not you know not really you, you get to see this you know astounding cast of of supporting players go all all over europe and and have a, a great time yeah it's it's just a blast i'm gonna say something weird i'm probably the only person in the western hemisphere who is uncharmed by this movie i I'm almost... with you man <laughs> I, was, right. I, I was building up to it but go ahead i go know ahead. I, I only saw this for the first time me and matthias Vandal rooster our common friend among us all we watched this about six months ago i i've never seen it before part of it was the singing in the rain counter effect like the stanley donan made a lot of movies that i'm not too sure i'd enjoy just on their face value i, I don't want to hold anything against it or, or exclude things i could like in the future but i went into this with a huge amount of expectations because of everything you guys just said i mean you got grant you got Jimmy Coburn, you got Walter Matthau, I mean, George Kennedy, Aubrey, Aubrey Hepburn. And then I, I found watching Audrey Hepburn, man, there's something about her in this movie that she kind of was the thing that turned me off. And I think that Audrey Hepburn has this perpetual cooing face where she almost comes across like a girl, a tiny little girl ooh ooing her way through movies there's something very unformed and juvenile and it's it's a turnoff and i i know that she's this you know this this titanic star who really took a time off and she you know everything she hit she made is a big hit amongst a lot of people but i found like this is this was uh carrie grant doing a lot of that coasting on his gray hair and his smile and not doing a lot of acting work and that that doesn't really pay off for me and audrey hepburn really just making her ooh face of like oh this is such a you know i'm just i'm just a little person just a little girl into this big thing that it's, it's so much ahead of me it's it's so bigger so much bigger than i can contemplate and so uh the the two versions of this whatever the two competing efforts inside this thing of a sort of a, a 1960s spy romp with the lighter aspects of like you know commedia dell'arte that the two of them are putting out it fell apart it never married for me and especially when you get to the end and she goes she finally gets to the head of uh when, he, when carrie grant is revealed 
essentially to work in that office and he op she opens the door and he mugs to her he comes up and he pulls this really cheesy face and i'm like that's it that's the whole movie that's what i think carrie grant has been doing is making a face and it just kind of fell apart. And I, I, when we, me and Matthias were like deconstructing it afterwards, I'm like, I can't believe that this didn't work on me. I really had this high expectation that this is going to be one of those movies that was a whole, you know, for me that I just am going to watch. I'm going to love. And it just slipped through my fingers like a rope, you know, uh, just returning to the sea pulled by a power boat. I just, I, nothing I'll say. I don't know why. I know why, but I'm just kind of shocked that it didn't leave any impression with me. I, I think you like. I think you're onto something. I think Cary Grant being like, "Oh, my name is Peter Joshua. It's Alexander Dial. It's Adam Canfield." You know, and like constantly changing his identity around her. My thought to is like, she finds this charming. I would hate this guy. This guy is so smug. I want. I would get the hell away from him. He's clearly not trustworthy. I, you know, like I didn't feel a chemistry between them, honestly. Uh, I knew Walter Matthau was the bad guy the minute he like, walked on screen. And I don't want to see Walter Matthau as like the secret bad guy. I want to see him as a crop duster. I want to see him as, you know, being casually racist in the New York subway. You know, that's the <laughs> Walter Matthau I want to see. I think it had a lot to do with that. I am also not a big Audrey Hepburn fan. Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's is a movie I would drop kick into the sun and sleep perfectly well that night. Like, I just, I'm not charmed by her at all. And she really has to carry this movie. And I think it really comes down to if you're not with her, you're not with this movie, I think is the really the simple kind of key to this. Because I was interested to learn more about, you know, Coburn and, and Kennedy and like what their kind of thing is. And I think what this movie needed to do was have all these men fall in love with her. I think that like that's really what it doesn't do is that it's too, it's too, it gets too caught up in like, you know, what is the mystery? Like, what's it all going to turn out? Who is Cary Grant really? It's like, I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. You need to focus this movie on her and their relationship to her. And it doesn't succeed. The It doesn't succeed. The espionage stuff, the, the knife fight on the roof is phony baloney. The big uh, climax with the prompt box in the on the stage, I found like a sub Hitchcocky and I would call it like, I was, that's why I worried. I think all these years subconsciously thought like I, I don't think I'm going to like this movie and that's why I don't want to see it. I don't want to like have to come out against it like this, but it's interesting to hear, you know, John talk about uh, it's more positive attributes and like this, this might maybe says more about me that I didn't like this movie than anything. Like maybe there's something wrong with me for not finding Grant and Hepburn, a totally charming and appealing in this film. Yeah. So I, I, I guess it's just a matter of taste because I am, perpetually charmed by audrey hepburn i, yeah, I love her yeah. in this movie um i have he was great in how to steal a million i mean i like that movie with peter o'toole that she's pretty charming there uh i have thoughts on breakfast at tiffany's um but so we can put that movie to the side um but for, for this one i think because i i was uh totally charmed by her as i am with you know most of the performances i've seen that i i was just on board and when she's, you know, the most famous line from this movie is, you know, what's wrong with you? Nothing. I think for me, because I believe her in her performance, I believe that she is into into Cary Grant as inexplicable as that might be for a guy who's lying to her in every encounter. Uh, it, the movie just works for, for me. She I, must I guess. have X-ray vision. You know, we talked about, you know, Gene Peters being able to see inside of Richard uh, Widmark and finding like a good man, but like 
Cary Grant, like everything, this movie is so wrapped up in its sort of uh, suspicion-esque, making you believe that Cary Grant might possibly be not a person with nothing wrong with him, that there's something devious about him. Mm-hmm. It seems like it the whole time, the fact that she can see through it is like supernatural and unbiable to me, you know? And, and an act of faith, yeah. Yeah, and, and seeing it specifically as a spy movie is like, she's a lousy spy. Like, you know, <laughs> she's she yeah. should have been dead by the end of this movie, uh, the fact that she isn't yeah, has nothing to do with her. She's almost just gliding through this film. Holly go lightly, going lightly through this film, you know, with uh, with with no stake in what's going on. And I like, I just can't care about someone who is com- so completely uninvested in in the plot when it's a spy movie, which really needs engagement. It really needs, you know, a character that you're going to either condemn or you know uh, or laud. And by the end of this film, I don't feel either way for her. I feel completely, like Bill said, I feel, you know, not just uh, un, uh, undelighted by it, but just completely hollow. Just, just just did nothing for me. It was just on the screen. It might as well have been a TV commercial. I don't know. I have, wow. I'm coming off so harsh on this movie. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. It's, it's okay. Fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's just, it's just not for, it's not for me, I think is what I would say. So Bill. I like it more than that. a lot of Hitchcock movies. I'll say that. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah maybe that's it maybe it's my you know if it's going to be hitchcock-esque it's already got a strike against i will say john i'm genuinely happy that you liked it i and i wish i wasn't uh there wasn't something wrong with me and i could like it too i i, I love that a podcast like this will give me an excuse to finally watch it so it was fun absolutely i'm glad i'm very glad i've watched it i can at least say now i've seen charade and not be embarrassed you know yeah. among film buddies are like what the hell's wrong with you, you haven't seen it but we mentioned Bond. We should talk about what is was kind of, I think, the kind of idea of it was to be the anti-Bond movie, which is The Ipcris File by Sidney J. Fury from 1965, which is a funny thing to think of that they approach this as the anti-Bond character when it's produced by Harry Salzman, Peter R. R. Hunt is the editor, Ken Adam is the production designer, and John Barry did the music, which is a very Bond score. I mean, literally seems like he just lifted... <laughs> some of his incidental music from the Bond movies and put them in this movie. Uh, but the anti-Bond that we're talking about is Harry Palmer, who was created by Len Dighton for a series of novels. He is a ministry defense agent with a criminal past. And in this movie, he gets transferred to a special unit investigating the brain drain, which is a surge of scientists leaving the employee of the British government without explanation. No one knows what's going on. He has this iconic look, of course, fucking Michael Caine playing Harry Palmer in a tortoiseshell uh, uh, Ivan spectacles from Curry and Paxton. He looks terrific. These, those specs look really amazing. And they are even more than someone like Elvis Costello. It's like, that's the image right there. Like that's, I'm behind that. Uh, and it gets more troubling as it goes along. But I guess the anti-Bond kind of idea of this is that Harry Palmer works at a desk, right? He's got like a cornered desk in an office. He goes into factories and he sifts through the dirt in empty factories. You know, he's he he shops at a market for canned mushrooms. You know, he's like more of a salaryman type guy, like a regular blue collar spy. And this film takes place uh, entirely in London. Even when you think you're in Albania, it turns out to be London all along. This just very Get Carter-esque kind of depressing underlit london and so it's not glamorous at all it's not trying to make the spy game look glamorous it's making it look irritating at at best and you know downright uh dangerous 
uh, for everyone involved at its worst. Saltzman did set out to make a competing James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. It was only at the insistence of people like Peter Hunt and Ken Adam to be like, no, that's a a terrible idea. It's not (laughs) it's not going to work. And so they set out to make an anti Bond movie. And Saltzman was just so dead set against Sidney J. Fury from the beginning, which is so bizarre. The director he hired Sidney J. Fury was not involved in any of the editing. Um, Peter Hunt uh, shot all second or a lot of second units. Um, Peter Hunt did the score spotting for this movie. So Peter Hunt was really like co-director on this film. He was like the buffer between Sidney J. Fury uh, and Harry Saltzman um, prevented Sidney J. Fury from getting fired. Saltzman still has or died having um, Sidney J. Fury's BAFTA. Never gave it to him. Very, very weird. Very, <laughs> very bizarre that the relationship these two guys had. But I just love the way the movie shot. Uh, you know, it, it's through keyholes, through parking meter gl- glass. Uh, sometimes characters will have in conversation ones in front of a door, ones hidden behind a door. Um, the one fight scene is shot from a distance through telephone booth glass. It's just everything is sort of off kilter from a distance, um, distorted. You don't really know who's who. And the visual language, you know, sort of reflects that. And when they go to see the band playing in that open uh, arena, it's I'm tensed up that entire time because they're so exposed that whole like atmosphere that they like set up. It's like, who's behind them, who's in front of them, you know, it just feels like the most it's crazy because it's like this daylight scene where they're in public, but it feels so mm-hmm. dangerous compared to like even more claustrophobic scenes. In yeah. The movie. And the way the the way Sidney J. Fury just picks the angles, it allows Ken Adams's extraordinary production design to to come through. So it's it's this group of people who were brought together to rip off James Bond. Turning that you know, mission into a piece of art that couldn't be anything further from James Bond. And so the, I, I I find that fascinating. And the more I watch it, the more I, I appreciate that. And of course, Michael Caine's performance. And obviously, you know, famously, this the studio was incensed at the idea of a, uh, a male lead with glasses who cooks. Lots of uh, disparaging epithets were thrown around about why that can't happen. But um, thankfully, we, we got this movie and Michael Caine's performance. You know, we, we need to give credit to Sidney Fury. He was, you know, I, I love journeyman directors and he's just like one of these guys who continually work forever and ever and ever. He's not even yeah. English, by the way, Canadian. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not quite sacrosanct that they wanted an Englishman to make this, but this was a guy who was stepping out from one of the colonies of Canada that they still part of the um, Commonwealth, at least was at the time. And is making a very English movie. And he, Sidney Fury had made, you know, he made The Entity and Sheila Levine is, de- is is dead and living in New York. Two of my favorite movies. This guy's got a lot of different tricks under the hood. Very interesting filmmaker. And at no point would you ever confuse this with James Bond. You would think that this is a soccer movie from Brazil as much as you would aspire. Even in the same, you know, weight class or same ball game as James Bond. They're completely immaterial, you know, not related to one another. There's a lot of great little details. And John, you mentioned the thing about going grocery shopping. 
And he's he's buying what is it button mushrooms? I forget what the name of the actual product was that he's looking for. He's a cook, so he knows what he's buying. He's buying food he plans on chopping and preparing later. That's one of his little quirks, and it's actually a good one. Is he's making he whipping eggs up and chopping up onions. And I thought the novelty of going into a big store for canned food really is. Uh, this was sixty five. I mean, this is you know twenty years after the war ended. Um, so it, it's really that sense of we are done with privation and we are modern that England has turned over a place with supermarkets, not the corner shop, the butcher, the milkman. This is a place where you can buy everything under one roof. And it was shot in a very particular way to show everybody pushing carts around. They don't take time out of movies to show you something like that unless it means something. And part of it is that sort of grind of what the mid 60s looked like in England. But I really enjoyed that. They just took the time two times to, to go to the, the, the goddamn grocery store for two shopping runs, just as an ancillary detail to ground this in reality. And the other it's thing is, is that too, because they the the handler he's with who yes. you know, comes and is just putting random stuff. That's cat food, sir, into his uh, <laughs> cart, you know, just so we can talk with him. Uh, mentions like, I don't know about this American style, you know, marketing thing like yes. American culture after the war has become so much more prominent. And we'll get in more into when we talk about Tinker Taylor, but like this frustration over like American culture, prominence of like it's of America as a superpower in England is frustrating to people, you know, and certainly this completely unflattering view of this close, you know, everyone like banging into each other, uh, low shot, you know, supermarket is a really interesting representation of that and how like these the spy wars and the secret you know clandestine you know kind of operations is outdated you know and like the stuff that's taken over for it is cheesy consumerism stuff think about um the real estate that the offices they occupy are in they're in beat up flats there are clearly dispossessed houses that have been empty in fact it starts off and he's on stakeout it looks like a fucking derelict slept and urinated in this place for 100 years it's dirty you don't you don't, you don't want to put your your coat on a hook because it's going to get covered with botulism or chlamydia or something and then the actual offices where they're doing the work are dark the walls are tobacco stained the floors creak it is that mid-60s and and you go through every single european capital that had a movie shot in at this time if you look at Jeff Costello's Paris uh, in the middle of Les Samurai, if you look at movies made in Amsterdam, we just watched a movie called uh, Puppet on a String. Like all of these European capitals were really dispossessed from the mid 60s until about the 80s. It wasn't just New York that that showed up in a lot of cities where there was this urban renewal hadn't happened. They hadn't gentrified and only the damned and cursed were left over. It was a place for the it was a place for the, you know, hell forsook everything else. So, you know, in addition to the grocery store, you got these really grotty places that they're doing the work. There's nothing glamorous about this. And it does, for me, stand on Michael Caine's almost like civil service job. He might as well be working for the IRS or the NHS or something like that. And so he's just tracking leads down on paper. He's really doing very little trade craft and he's mostly looking at receipts. He's looking at things and analyzing paperwork and doing like pattern recognition, like data analysis. That's why this doesn't in any way, shape or form resemble a James Bond movie. Sure. James Bond never shot a... Uh, you know an american agent before by accident in one of his movies oh yeah, yeah it's uh yeah i mean even his response to it because we are know that harry palmer comes from a criminal background and he's uh you know not he's not a dignified gentleman who comes from like a you know a, a good home and a good family and he has a name for himself he is really just someone who's 
there to do a job and he's shocked that what that job is is pushing paperwork you know and uh reporting to superiors who he detests it's like a real job it really is like what this is presented as is like some like nine to five thing that you just don't want to do he's like gotta work on saturday harry like god damn it i have to work on saturday it's such an interesting take on this particular genre and you know the fact that there is this kind of crazy science fictiony kind of like plot at hand where they you know finally ultimately uh kidnap him and try to brainwash him just makes the whole thing more surreal that we've had these like we, we spent so long in this dreary these dreary interiors and this equally dreary exteriors of overcast london and then suddenly it's like a light show of like psychedelic madness that's like infiltrating his brain uh and we're like what's what is it that like you know harry palmer needs to like be at the end of this movie i don't think the film is interested in like harry palmer's got to reach some revelation or have an, an arc or an angle it's like at the end of it he's just got to continue being his own grumpy self his own disillusioned uh prone to mistakes and errors that cost people their lives kind of individual self which is just at a point in britain that it's that everything is uh like a former shadow of what it once was like the once great empire is now you know being <laughs> uh uh being subcontracted to people like harry palmer i think is really an interesting take on this kind of thing and you know the ministry officials that are giving harry palmer orders you know one of them turns out to be evil as happens in, in spy movies and in, in real life and so the better boss is evil which yeah is interesting and so it is interesting that the remnants of empire are now giving orders to harry palmer but they as corrupt and abhorrent as empire was they no longer now even believe in that mission their sort of stuffy aristocratic heirs you know, mean absolutely nothing. And it's especially when put up against um, American consumerism, against everything that, that Harry Palmer is interested in, like fashion or, or, or cooking, you know, they're just shambles of what they were 20 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. And so really, the only reason Harry Palmer shoots an American agent is because these assholes are liars and telling him to be in this you know parking garage with a submachine gun nigel green who plays the turncoat guy you know these these everyone who appears as um, a superior they all wear the same bowler derby there's something very english about them they're either grads of sandhurst or at eton eton i don't know how you pronounce that school you know they are very from the traditional power plays uh power places where the english gentry send their kids and they essentially inherit jobs at the top cast of society. And so Nigel Green's character for not, you know, not for not a single second of the movie is suspected to be a bad guy. It's very much that Kim Philby thing where it's like mm -hmm. these people worked in plain fucking sight of everybody for years, but because they had good breeding, there's no way they could possibly be a threat to the Commonwealth. It just wasn't going to happen. It was preposterous. And it's a fun movie too. Like I, that's the thing is like, it never, it's never not entertaining. Like there's never not interesting stuff going on. So it manages to be like a, like an impressive spy thriller uh, while also having this kind of like anti-spy thriller thing. I think that's when, when, you, when we say anti-Bond more than anything, it's not just like this is a different character. It's like this is a different approach to this idea, which and more realistic, obviously, even with its sci-fi elements 
Uh, so yeah, great movie. But the real, the, I guess the real anti-Bond movie from this time, which I just want to talk about briefly because I don't think it's a great movie, but it's interesting to bring up is the Quiller Memorandum, directed by Michael Anderson in 1966, which is another uh, you know literary spy character in the Bond vein named Quiller. Uh, brought into, uh, you know, they tried to do like a Bond franchise of, and I think this is the only film they ever made. Uh, it was adapted by Harold Pinter. And they got John Barry again. John Barry's really making bank on these buy, these, uh, these spy movies in, in this era. And they decided to cast, strangely, George Seagal as Quiller. Bring in, bring in George Seagal, import him from America to play this very British character who's taking orders from Alec Guinness a very strange decision and like to play him as like a smug almost like street cop kind of character more than like uh like a suave secret agent like he's a very smart alecky guy who like his his, apparently his big expertise is like he knows when people are following people are following him and he's very good at like losing them and then like circling back and be like hey were you following me like (laughs) this kind of thing and the villain in this movie is max von Sydow playing a character named october who um just wants to know where their base is i guess is sort of like the big thing is he wants to get the location of like the oss base out of uh, uh not the oss but the uh secret service base out of george seagal so they're constantly like uh, kidnapping him and torturing him and things like that and there's not much more beyond that which i think is the reason this movie's not well remembered i also don't well remember it um it <laughs> it, it was like the dullest movie about rooting out neo-nazis uh, um the the most pompadoured yes. max von Sydow. yeah yeah i think certainly the most interesting aspect of the movie is max von Sydow being menacing and interrogating george seagal so yeah i I'm, I'm glad i watched it it was not too interesting yeah i, I don't have much to say that's about it. that yeah no that's stu- i don't blame you that stuff is genuinely upsetting though because max von Sydow is such a great actor uh when he's trying to pull stuff out of him after they drugged him and he's trying to like ask casual questions that are going to lead him to uh, betraying, you know, the confidence uh, of his, um, of his handler. That stuff is definitely uh, upsetting, uh, but they put it at the beginning, like it's totally backwards. Like that should have happened late in the movie. It should have taken the, uh, the Ypres files, you know, mm-hmm. a model of like that. That's, that's the big third act is that like, you know, he's captured and he's tortured and they're trying to get him to betray his superiors. They, it's, it happens like 20 minutes into the movie you know yeah. it's a, this movie's just to, a totally unstructured weird slacker of a film and there is something that could be really compelling which is that the ultimate thing is that they he has struck up this relationship with this german teacher and uh she's clearly in love with him and it comes down to they kidnap her they have her in their clutches and they're like uh okay so we're going to kill her unless you give us the information we want. It's up to you. Like go th- weirdly. They like, go think about it. And he escapes. He runs away, like leaves her to die. And that's a really interesting thing that he would have to live with is like, he left this woman. He actually loves to die because there's bigger things at stake. But the movie kind of totally whiffs on that too, because she's, you know, ambiguously in league with them. It turns out. It's not clear. It's an interesting idea that is just very badly developed. Like it just yep. doesn't land. And that's just sort of the story of this film is that like interesting ideas that you can't do anything with. Like it just shows it's funny because we're like, 
oh, you know, uh, Sidney J. Fury is, you know, the guy who made the Iron Eagle movies and Ladybugs. Like, he's a journeyman director. He's not like any kind of auteur. But he handles that movie so much more interestingly than Michael Anderson, who's also a longtime journeyman director, does with this one. I think it's just a difference of, like, you need to know your character and you need to know how, what makes your hero interesting. And this movie has no fucking clue what yeah. makes Quiller interesting at all. Um, the book is a little bit better. I've only read the first book, um, but I wouldn't say there was too much more you could do to it to like make it a James Bond style, you know, smash of a franchise. But it's kind of interesting that it exists and these kind of attempts to do that kind of thing and to ask moral, you know, questions that don't really stay with you after the movie's over. Uh, the last big film we have to talk about, and this is another one that could have been like, this is the important film to talk about in the 1960s, is Martin Ritz, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold from 1965, which is a story of an agent named Alec uh, Lamus, who was uh, late of the West Berlin office of MI6. He seemingly drummed out of the agency, despondent, alcoholic, forced to get a job in a library, oh my God, uh, where he meets Nan Perry, who is this uh, attractive young communist working at the library who tries to like kind of get him out of his funk. It gets so bad that he attacks Bernard Lee in a grocery store, which can't be an accident. That's M God damn it. Like, you know, you're attacking the British government and all of its values right there. If you're attacking Bernard Lee afterwards, he's approached by a series of operatives who want him to defect to East Germany. And that's when his true mission becomes clear. He is supposed to give this false impression of being jaded so that they will uh, bring him over to East Germany. And he will then lead them to believe an intelligence officer whose name is Munt is a paid informant for England. Uh, and he, while he convinces, convinces his interrogator fielder played by Oscar Werner, his credibility is called into question at a tribunal where Munt's defense attorney brings Nan in to reveal that she's received payments from one George Smiley, who Lamus has insisted he doesn't know at all. Uh, and so fielder is arrested for plotting against Munt. Lamus and Nan are thrown into prison, but it was all a double, double subterfuge. Munt actually is a British double agent. They sent Lamus in to give Munt more credibility is the big twist of the film. And I'm going so heavily into this plot because we are in the world now of John Le Care, where there are very convoluted, I should say, deceptively convoluted plots that are actually very simple and actually come down to like a very simple uh, plot wise but very like very complicated emotions and relationships changing within it spy came in from the cold it's 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 it'll, it'll mess with your brain i was kind of wowed when i watched this movie it, it wasn't what i expected you know i've seen plenty of lacare adaptations and there's something about um oh by the way paul dean uh wrote this who was one of the co-writers again john on uh, planet of the apes right you got to, it to, to get back the sequels, there yeah the sequels yeah um yeah, the magic synthesis of, of Dick Burton and Marty Ritt and Claire Bloom, uh, there's a lot going on here that introduces the John le Carre drab, soul-killing plainness of tradecraft. I mean, from the first scene when they're at Checkpoint Charlie and the bicyclist is shot, you know, it's just it's just all in a night's work, right? It's just all this, the shit falls apart daily, and it all just happens, and here's a life that's traded. And, you know, I mean, Burton's character, Lamus, makes some, some you know, verbal platitudes about how these lives meant something. But the reality is, is that he has to go move pieces on the board every day. You know, he just has to plan for people dying. Some have to be expended, not just expendable, but they are put out to be killed. 
to set a credibility for other people or to knock it out for them, uh, depending on what the mission is. It's, uh, I mean, the, the, the storytelling, the themes are as, are as black and white and as gray as the cinematography. Um, this is this is my favorite Marty Ritt movie. And I have a soft spot because last year, me and, and James Hancock, our mutual friend, went to Dublin. And this is one of the movies we covered when we were doing film locations. This was actually shot a location in Dublin, all the externals. They made it look like uh, Checkpoint Charlie because it was still more or less the untamed West out there. Um, so it was fun to walk around in that actual plaza where they shot the guy on the bicycle. But uh, this movie has something else that, uh, again, some others don't. And, uh, you know, talk about the Conrad Veidt complex again and that Oscar Werner comes into this movie midway through and just takes it over, puts it on his shoulders, does something with his performing his contrast between oscar werner and burton burton being the uh you know shakespearean his his uh his welsh elocution you know him doing samuel taylor coleridge or 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 you know the way he uh handles big tracks of text on stage is legendary and he does one particular kind of screen acting Oscar Werner is the other kind. He's the guy that comes in there and you're seeing an internal roiling person. It's such a, a psychological performance and he's so refreshing. He's so hot. It's so sort of fresh. It's, it's boiling under the surface. You're and he comes in with his leather flat cap and his leather jacket. And, you know, he's German, but he's playing a, well, you see, he's, he's playing German, I think about it. Uh, but, you know, they were all working for the communists. It's all Cold War stuff. And the... Uh, the operating temperature of the way Burton works, the way Oscar Werner works, is just so delicious. It's watching these two things complement each other, you know, like dill in a soup or, 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 or something like that. And again, the fact that Oscar Werner comes in so late into the movie where they've established this drunken, you know, you really believe him is buying bottles and bottles of whiskey and getting shit-faced every night. That's Richard Burton. That's method. There's no problem selling that. Yeah, and I'll agree with you, John. In terms of like the plot is both like it, it curlicues and corkscrews so much that it returns to where it started because it just psychs itself out and reverses and double reverses and whatnot on the way back to something very simple. Till you get to that ending scene where Claire Bloom gets shot on the wall and they both get essentially executed. Like the whole thing falls apart. Exactly the kind of deep dark ending you want. But this is an actor's delight. You know, there's just so much red meat here to dig into watching a lot of different performance uh, modes played off with one another. And Martin Ritt, rather than getting buried into a you know snowstorm of acting technique and detail, manages to make a fucking symphony out of it. Certainly couldn't say it better than you did, Bill. Um, yeah, I do love this movie. It is an incredibly dark, uh, drab view of what spycraft is and the the day-to-day -day drudgery, this soul-killing sameness of having to pretend to be somebody else. I, I love the contrast in acting, like you were saying, Bill, and it does give Burton like the chance to really explode with rage at what the espionage game does to human beings. And I think that's Carré sort of putting himself in Burton's mouth, which is the privilege of a writer like him. But he says what he's asked, what, like, what is the point of what you're doing here. He says, What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. 
Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? And yeah, there's a complete disregard for what is the right thing to do. And you get that from the very beginning when Burton meets with Control, and Control is talking about doing wicked things to eliminate the wickedness of the opposition. But then, of course, you become the monster you're, you're, you're fighting. And I think this is, movie is a descent into that world and, you know, the the final despairing, pointless trek to try and climb up over the wall until, until you're shot. It's, it's a, a real um, depressing film. <laughs> But I love it. Yeah, it's not a crowd. It's not. It's not a crowd pleaser. It's not one that's going to get people to stand up and cheer. But and John, look, John, look. I'm going to keep calling him John Lacar just because I have like gone for a record for mispronouncing names on this episode. <laughs> and I'm not. It's 100%. a fake name anyway. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, fake yeah, yeah. name. Yeah. The black and white. The use of black and white in this movie is really something. I mean, when you say it's a depressing movie, it's like no shit. It like it like mm. I can't think of too many movies that look depressing. But like between like the extreme close-ups on Richard Burton looking so sad, very few actors have ever looked so consistently sad as he does in this movie, where it's not even like a sadness out of like something that happened or didn't happen. It's like a sadness of like, there's just no hope or excitement for me in my life, you know? Uh, it's an interesting contrast to the Harry Palmer kind of life where it's like, ah, my fucking job, I just deal with it and I'm kind of like a shit heel about it. And it's it's like no 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 like this job has crushed this guy, and yeah. that's sort of the John Lacar sort of specialty of like the duty that you know that you have to do as a, a British citizen that you have to do as an agent of the crown is crushing. The complete disrespect for life that Bill mentioned is just you know something that just kind of happens in this you know it's it's something that has completely affected him um, that he can't have. That 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 this one thing, this one thing with Claire Bloom with uh, Nan Perry, that's real and like it actually like affects him, is the one thing that's going to be end up being threatened and that's going to end up you know completely destroying him, uh, and making him realize he's a pawn in the system. You know, is a tragedy and it's you know really informs this film. It's it's funny because this is exactly the kind of film I was thinking of, like <laughs> to the real anti Bond film. Like this is you know. This you couldn't get less cheery and fun than this movie, but that whole thing of like you're not allowed to enjoy this, like, is what this film is, and maybe what I was a little afraid of getting into these movies, like a movie that is just going to like bold face put this stuff in the foreground and say, like, you're wrong to think that there's anything good that comes out of espionage and subterfuge. It's only misery, and it's only like going to shatter souls. It's a soul shattering thing. And this is a soul-shattering film. My personal favorite movie uh, from Martin Ritt, Bill, is uh, The Molly Maguires, which, funnily enough, is another movie about a great Irish movie star who is uh, a double undercover. agent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, another uh, great drinker, Richard Harris. So so this movie is something. I'd say it's definitely something, not nothing. You know, the absolute horror that Richard Burton expresses when, like, the one bright point in his life shows up in the courtroom in East Germany, like just the the way his his face falls. I agree with you, John. I don't know if I've seen a man look sadder. The way he's just staring on, on forward, completely impotent, completely helpless to like what's yeah. going to happen next. Yeah. And yeah. seeing her like have to just reveal her as like being so yeah. horribly used. 
Yeah. And it's it's not only, you know, and it's and there is a different level of wickedness bringing in someone like her an innocent into your spy games like all right so you 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 killed a double agent and you you betrayed him like okay like that that's the name of the game but when you bring in these people that you meet to manipulate and they end up getting killed in in east germany it's detestable it's definitely not a movie that you get over quickly i will say that much about it and you know i think that de-romanticizing kind of element of it is uh interesting to come out in the middle of the 60s because in a way it feels antiquated like it's like old sentiments but it really is like a very progressive kind of like thought that like these things are just going to be destructive and there's nothing else that is their nature like you know these practices are destructive and that's really all that there is and that's what you're left with is two dead bodies against the berlin wall and it's like but you can go and watch thunderball if you like to get over this movie that's uh perfectly <laughs> fine too all right guys uh the 1970s the paranoia decade right that's you know we're talking watergate we're talking uh parallax view we're talking we'd already mentioned that manchurian candidate was ahead of its time i feel like it predicted this decade specifically when corruption is front page news like there are no secrets anymore theoretically the idea is any all the cd stuff is going to like come to light now like it's not going to be clandestine at all people are going to know what's going on and there's a big idea that like that's the last thing that any of these agencies want is to like have their their tawdry affairs thrown onto the front page which brings us into a movie that we picked for the main movie and one that i had not seen before three days of the condor sydney pollock from 1975 this movie completely took me by surprise right away because i only know it from j-lo and uh clooney talking about it in out of sight which made me believe that Robert Redford's character was going to be the suave George Clooney type guy, not a a reader, <laughs> not an analyst for the CIA, a non-field company man, turning pages of pot boilers and pulp spy thrillers in a building on the east side, upper east side. I wasn't ready for that. I thought he was going to be like, you know, a dashing spy. But yeah, he plays Joe Turner, his codename is Condor. And he is um, reports on like possible invented bits of espionage that he finds in uh, in in books basically he reports them to his handler who he's never seen uh and luckily for him he is getting lunch out at the lexington candy shop uh lunchette hope uh, about to celebrate its 100th anniversary i think we should all meet on the 100th anniversary to it's, have lunch it's, wow. still, it's still there yeah it's still yeah, there we absolutely yeah. should yeah we absolutely awesome. should do that i think it's like 2029 or something we got to remember that this is a podcast yeah. so this this pact is unbreakable it's, it's <laughs> unbreakable out there. He's out getting lunch when uh, Joubert, played by Max von Sydow, leads a team of assassins into the office and murders everybody there, all of his co-workers and his friends in the office. And he comes back to like their uh, mutilated bodies and goes on the run. Uh, he tries to come in from the cold, but his uh, trigger-happy handler tries to murder him and he realizes he can't trust anybody. He ends up meeting, by chance, Kathy Hale, played by Faye Dunaway who immediately develops Stockholm Syndrome and falls in love with him, even though he's kidnapped her and uh, made her uh, harbor him in her apartment. Uh, and he's trying to figure out what's happening, who who the bad guys are has never been less clear. 
and you know how he can get out of this i john i've liked this movie i mean i'm really genuinely shocked you hadn't seen it i just thought it's such low-hanging fruit it's like you're saying you haven't seen godfather 2 or something like that it's one that just passed me by i didn't even think of it like as a pop cultural phenomenon or anything it's just like oh i just didn't get around to it you know until you know pollock 75 redford it's like it it checks off so many of the desultory boxes i mean nonetheless we're not here to you know make you feel small just because you oh, i love jeremiah it, johnson you're right there's really yeah. no excuse to have not uh, seen this movie just didn't get it yeah out. the uh you know my my uh my love of the 70s is evident and uh my lukewarmness on pollock is also evident too the more i watch pollock the more i sort of realize that he goes one of two different ways with me either stuff like in the 80s out of africa real melodrama some of the you know worst impulses that he follows down on film i really don't like tootsie i think tootsie's a ridiculous movie i don't know it's it's why was it such a gigantic hit? I couldn't tell you. Uh, Sabrina, whatever. He he didn't have a good back half of his career. That doesn't mean he wasn't capable of making good movies, but the 70s and the 60s really is where he was in a comfort zone, real niche. And he had a really good working relationship with Bob Redford. You know, I mean, Jeremiah Johnson is great. It is a fantastic Western. I was about to say it's 70s Western, but it's like 1968 or something like that. You know, they also remade, uh, they also made uh, Electric Horseman together, which is not my favorite movie, but it's still, there's some charm to seeing the two of these guys, the comfort zone they have with each other. And Redford, there's a couple of movies. This is one of them. I would say the Dortmunder movie, uh, Hot Rock. It's like movies that were not intended for Redford to be the lead of, and yet he was still a credible lead in a movie where it's clear they're describing a different man than what we're looking at with the guy walking around inside the shoes. It is not blonde sure. California. It is not Santa. What is it? Uh, he grew up in um, uh, right there, uh, San, uh, right on the waterfront in California. It's like, and yet he played a Jew in hot rock and he's playing a guy who's clearly supposed to be a Wallace Shawn type looking guy here. But this, this movie is fantastic. One of my favorite recent, uh, what I read recently, Redford anecdotes is from the Mike Nichols bi- uh, biography Mark Harris uh-huh. put out which is that he was really campaigning for the role of the lead in The Graduate. He really wanted to play uh, Benjamin in The Graduate. And uh, Mike Nichols was just trying to talk him out of it. was like, this part's not right for you, Rob. And he was like, I think I'd be pretty good. He's like, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been shot down by a girl in your life? And Robert (laughs) Redford's reaction was, what do you mean? Like he couldn't even fathom the idea that like a girl would not fall head over heels in love with him just by looking at him he's like yeah exactly that's why you're not right for this part yeah uh you know it there's look i'm these are all movies i'm saying that i actually enjoy i hot rock is great brew baker is great you know even though he's not the guy you'd expect to be in those movies he's really great he elevates those things he's a good enough actor not just a movie star but i think he's got a good technique as an actor too and i think that this is a great 70s movie this is dark this is twisty this has people you think are going to be friends obviously give feints that they're clearly going to tre- uh, be treacherous to you again when his handler shoots in on the in the alleyway starts taking shots at him it's like you know you kind of see it coming you kind of don't see it coming but you realize that the earth is you know in gigantic upheaval and he's really gonna to have to hide and you know people talk about the uh faye dunaway thing with that you know the cocked eye like you say in terms of like really this is stockholm syndrome it's like he could be a rapist or a murderer and she still lets him in the house and says i'll help you and it's like, if you kind of get over it, I just want to fast forward to the chemistry between Dunaway and Redford, even though apparently they didn't really work well together on set because Redford was busy cramming for the next movie. He was, you know, doing his research for the next one and kind of just, I don't say soft pedaling through this one, 
but apparently I think that this was a break breakneck enough production that he was able to keep it pretty superficial and do a good job. But I mean, this has great tone. This is dark. The cinematography cinematography is fab. This is a Roisman movie, I think. I think Roisman shot this one, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. Um, but New York looks great. And you know what? There's an MVP in this movie, that fucking mailman, Hank Garrett, who is one of, he's the button man. And it's like he shows up two times, once with the machine gun as they're laying waste everywhere in the office, which is just brutal. Uh, just, just you know, they, please don't stand in front of the window. Thank you. You know, and they shoot the woman. It's just sick. And then later on, he like gets down to some like real MMA combat sports. It's like even without a gun, that guy's like ready to get down. Uh, and it's like that's I, I he barely even has a line, but I just enjoy seeing such a heavy performance from a side guy who they gave the spotlight to and let cultivate a real menace. So, I mean, you know, off to the side, you know, Max von Sydow's great. He's got a small part. Uh, Cliff Robertson comes in, does something very small. That's a great, you know, a great scene that kind of puts a ball on everything where he says, he goes, you didn't tell anybody, did you? And Redford, like, cocks a thumb over his shoulder and points at the Times to the New York Times, indicating that, like, he collected everything and delivered it to the New York Times to blow up all the counter, you know, this uh, counter espionage. And and Cliff Robertson says, you poor, dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> it's just such a great line reading. Uh, yeah, there's nothing about this not to like, other than the fact that for years I got this confused with the Day of the Jackal, just because of all the damn animals sure. and the names in the 70s. But yeah, it's wonderful, man. <laughs> You know, I think I have the same problem with Robert Redford that you do, Bill, with uh, Audrey Hepburn. Like, I just, <laughs> I just, I just don't believe him. It doesn't I, work on you. The charm doesn't work on you. No, no, he's he's great in that one Twilight Zone episode where he's death and just has to be handsome and reassuring, and that's it, the end. But yeah, I just don't believe him as a nebbish bookworm. I just keep thinking of all the other great seventies actors that would have been better in the role. You don't think that he was the movie equivalent of Roy Hobbs? Best there ever was. Best there ever is going to be. <laughs> But yeah, I I agree. The supporting cast is great. Um, I I think the paranoia is just communicated so well th through the cinematography and through the performances. Both Redford and Dunway fall in love pretty quick after Redford's girlfriend is murdered, and she's supposed to be on a ski trip with her boyfriend. That's this... just New York City life, man. Things move yeah, fast. Yeah, <laughs> you're from one relationship to another. Three hours from the brutal murder of your girlfriend, you're literally in bed with. <laughs> I mean, it's fade away, so maybe. But the the way Redford is dehumanized consistently by his handlers, you know, refusing to call him by his his actual name, insisting he uses his code name, his sort of un his discomfort with being in that world because he's so he's so in that reader mode. Like all he does is read like Dick Tracy comics and. And, and spy novels and, th and things and so i i i buy him being he seems like a guy element. i'd love to just hang around and talk with about yeah. Dick tracy comics and stuff. yeah <laughs> absolutely and you know he's he doesn't take his job seriously it's clear that he's constantly late and that's why he gets s sent out out to lunch but you know it's another great menacing performance from max von Sydow. I, I love the interplay that him and redford have have together him you know jobert giving Joe Turner advice, but you probably don't want to go back to New York. You're probably going to get going to get killed. I I could have done maybe uh, one or, one or two more to to give Redford's character a little more heft and introspection. I, I still definitely enjoyed it, and I'm glad I I watched. It. Yeah, this was a first viewing for me. So John, you're you're not, you're not alone, and it um just kind of passing you by. 
it is weird it's one of those kind of films that like i think anyone you'd ask would be like oh it's great but like no one is like jumping up to be like you know what's great it's three days of the condor you know Mm -hmm. it's so that's kind of of, i think at least for me my purview like kind of like comes under the radar in that way the big kind of plot that develops the reason that they were targeted in the first place is that he has read this book and done a report on this book that for some reason was a commercial failure but still got translated into spanish dutch and arabic all the places where there are major oil fields and uh, finds out that there's this C there's this like deputy director of operations for the middle east who read his report and uh it's it has to do with a rogue operation to seize oil fields in the middle east uh and he's thinking well let's get rid of everyone who knows about this so he's basically working on his own he's like a rogue agent within the cia and i think that's kind of like what works here really well is the idea of like not just as like your government against you and like your co-workers and bosses wanting to kill you it's like this system is so broken that someone could like branch off and do their own thing affects the global economy in a huge way and like is this like uh unbelievable huge operation on his own like that's how like messed up this system is is like literally things like this can happen assassinate political assassinations can happen uh on the drop of a dime because one person decides it's a good idea it's not like a collective idea of like what's best for the country what's best for like defense what's best for uh you know uh stepping in to help other agencies like post-vietnam the sentiment is like the system is broken and this kind of thing can happen and you're totally fucked if like you end up on the wrong end of it um which is crazy and that conversation between him and Jobert uh oh sorry, it's been such oh, god damn he's amazing just telling him you know like well your life's over do what i did become a hitman you know gun for hire go kill people this is the guy who murdered his friends telling him this like you know here's the best thing you can do is go off and kill random people like i do like that's what you have and like the fact that you know joe actually finds like an alternative which is like i'm gonna try to like really blow the roof off like how broken the system is it's a hollywood ending for sure but like i think the real ending is like that that to be like as an individual person like in this era you can do nothing like all you can do is like get caught up and be like uh an inconvenient cog in the system that needs to be Mm -hmm. like taken out but there's a gap there's a gap between there's a gap between the pentagon papers and all the president's men and this sits in the center where it's like the real weapon is the free press, you know, the power of the cudgel that the New York Times and the Washington Post had, you still have this, this unweaning belief, uh, that's not the right word, I'm saying this, this unyielding belief that free press is still going to blow up these op- these these mechanisms of depravity and, you know, lassitude that are just running world affairs, you know, with real baleful intent. And, you know, I mean, again, he follows this up next with all the president's men. It's like he really was in this vein of trying to say, like, all we can do is rely on uh, sunlight being the best disinfectant. And so we got to use newspapers and, you know, essentially newspapers in particular more than TV to scour the infection away. Yeah, I think that's optimistic to say the least, you know, trust the media to do the right thing. Again, very of its era, like like the right ending for that time. But when John Hausman says that he doesn't miss uh, the action of the 10 years of the great war, what he misses about it is that kind of clarity, I think is a really significant line that things at this point aren't even about like infiltration of the system so much as like there, there's no definitive bad guy anymore. And in this movie, who was the bad guy in this movie? You say it's obviously Von Sydow because he's a murderer, but like he's just doing his job. 
Like that's what they paid doing. him. They paid him to do it. He gets paid, paid two times. He's a mercenary. Yeah, that's movie. what he does. He lets Robert. You know, he he's like, hey, your contract, my contract on you is uh, canceled because I killed the guy who put that out. So you're good. You were good to Robert Redford. Like you were good. I tried to kill you the whole movie. But we're good now. You can go ahead and go. Uh, I mean, that's terrifying. That like not. It's not just like a fiendish uh, guy. You know, a, a goateed man in a bank. You know pretending to be a clown who's trying to take over the world it's not a blowfeld it's like a broken system is the villain the system that you work for and you believe in as an american um mm -hmm. i think is a really interesting angle and the movie does sort of accuse us of being the villain because you know we're told or, or cliff robertson says that um what what if the next time it's not oil that we're looking at there it's it's water or plutonium what are the people who have never known hunger going to do when they go hungry? They're going to say, get it for us. And, you know, I think that's definitely it him. It really passes the buck on to us, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that's certainly him deferring all responsibility for being one of the top dogs in the CIA. But on American ideals, on democracy itself, yeah, right? Yeah, A anytime there's any inkling of like any sort of shortage in America where there, there's panic buying and, you know, we, we lived through that during, during, during the pandemic, there was no sense of personal responsibility from that character's perspective. The CIA is responding to that or predicting or trying to prevent that sort of chaos from, from happening. And that leads to, you know, crimes against humanity. Right. Um, this, this this was before the OPEC embargo. That would come like four or yeah, five years later. Yeah, 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 it's insane. Yeah. Fun irony too that uh, he falls back on like ancient spying techniques, wiretapping and using the phone system and everything like that to like <laughs> to get out from under this. Like he goes back to like the old techniques that we all associate with spy movies, gadgets. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I did have a, a real kick out of watching these analog gadgets be used to d defeat the CIA. That, that was great. <laughs> But you got to believe that Bob Redford's a quick study too, because he goes from a guy who's just like sifting through books for phonics and ideas and phrases, and all of a sudden he gets pretty good at tradecraft. That's that's a stunning transformation. I think well, they do mention when talking about his background that he he worked for a, a telephone company, like right, between like CIA and and his military service. He took right. his Chester Gould knowledge and put it to use. With <laughs> the I did not rewatch the Macintosh Man or the Marathon Man. Uh, but I think these kids should get together with the Marlboro Man and make a movie. Um, but, <laughs> but I know you guys watched them. Uh, any thoughts on those movies before we move on to our alternate film of the the seventies? Um, hey, Marathon Man was another first watch for me. Um, that was I, I just you know recency bias maybe, but it might be my favorite Dustin Hoffman performance. He, I I just really loved how unafraid to be unlikable he was. In this film, he he's a character who's psychologically a mess. Watching him run is physically painful. It's it's like he he runs as a means of self harm. Like he he hates himself so much that he he, he runs, you know, for masochistic purposes. And you know he he it's another character who finds himself involved in this nefarious spy game where the American intelligence agencies are paying Sir Lawrence Olivier's, you know, Nazi war criminal money to out some of his friends. And his efforts to get out from under that 
are, you know, harrowing, you know, running shirtless and barefoot through the streets of New York, d- desperate to escape. But it's a movie with also a, a lot of great touches. Like, you know, it opens with this like 10 minute like fight between two old men whose cars are stalling out in, in the streets yeah. of, of New York that, that ends with a, a fiery conf- conflagration. Um, so there's all these little great moments that you weren't expecting, not least of which is Sir Lawrence Olivier having a wrist blade that he <laughs> slices somebody's throat with. Yeah, you know, there's a thing that Schlesinger does in this movie where uh, Olivier is walking through the Diamond District and there's there's um, there's Jews all around. There's Orthodox Jews, there's Pais, there's, there's uh, yarmulkes. And it's this weird thing. The camera it almost feels like you're you are being you're feeling his revulsion at just being around all the semitism, and, you know. Like, and it's so strange. I don't know how he managed to do that. Like, we should feel like we're with the Jews in the Diamond District, and the one guy sort of comes out and he stabs him, you know, to sort of get him off his case. Uh, and it, and it's weird. It's like, how is this movie so, um, you know, like you're not in Larry Olivier's you know, uh, camp for this one. But it's kind of weird that they give you this feeling of weird being overwhelmed. The water is rising under your nostril because you're surrounded by all these Jews. It was a really strange thing to see. I didn't expect to feel that um, in this movie. But yeah, you know, I, I could see this being your favorite Dustin Hoffman uh, performance. It's 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 not mine. I think that um, he started to calcify some of the ticks that he would have going into the 80s. I mean, some of these some of these great lion actors like Pacino or whatnot were doing the work in the late 70s of like establishing the, the coast that they would have throughout the 80s and whatnot. But I mean, uh, Hoffman's great. I can see what you mean also about there being a masochism to his running. You know, that's just more the torture that he puts himself through as an actor to me of like everything with us and Hoffman has to look riven on screen. Like he stretched mm-hmm. himself out, slept on benches and all that shit that Olivier excoriated him for legendarily. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, somebody once said that you needed an outsider or an outsider was able to tell stories um, of New York, you know, Schlesinger being an Englishman, a Londoner. And, you know, he did a, a Midnight Cowboy and he did this. And, you know, he was able to see New York in sort of a different way, which is maybe why explains why you have um, Larry Olivier playing an Engl- uh, playing a German. Hoffman, who's not from New York, he's a California product, but he looks like Hoffman always to me. I thought he was someone who was born off the soil of New York, but he's not. He just spent a lot of time there as an actor um, working on his craft. But th- this is a fine movie. I mean, I can't say I can't phrase it any higher than that. Um, it's not my favorite movie of the 70s. But it's definitely a nasty piece of business. It's more violent than you would think. Um, and, you know, and the only the only weakness is that I'm not a huge Marta Keller fan. They really freighted her into a lot of movies in the 70s. I think they were trying to make her a thing. And I don't really think she was a thing. I think her best work to me was in Bobby Deerfield with Pacino. Everything else, she kind of like fell on deaf ears with me. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a classic, not for no reason. And I, I love uh, Roy Schreider as as Dustin Hoffman's brother. He's, he's so great. Yeah. You get to see him doing some uh, inclined push-ups, look, looking like a, a real um, genuine yeah. tough guy. And the like you said, the violence in this movie, the the scene with the piano wire um, is, is harrowing uh, and something I was not expecting from this film. So yeah, we, we got a great fight. We got shirtless uh, Roy Schreider and um, we got Olivier being forced to swallow diamonds. 
And 76 New York, too. I mean, I love watching yeah. the movie from 76 to like 82. There's something about seeing Manhattan at that point of just urban, urban, lack of urban renewal. It's it's kind of dazzling as it is as it is gray and depressing at the same time. Any thoughts on the Macintosh Man, the John Huston movie? I saw it at uh, Film Forum, I want to say about seven or eight years ago. And I, you know, it's like I like John Huston movies. And I thought, oh, this is really one of the only times that him and him and Paul Newman worked together. Don't really carry anything away from it in terms of a memory. It really kind of passed by. It's not a legendary John Huston movie in the way some of the stuff that he did towards the end of the 70s uh, was like Wise Blood, uh, Under the Volcano, stuff like that. Um, yeah, it was it was OK. It's not it's not like an absolutely essential spy movie stuff. It feels a little, a little lighter, you know, maybe a paycheck gig for um an opportunity for Newman to work with Houston, maybe more than anything else, as far as I know. It feels very uncentered because I never knew who Paul Newman was. Like there's times where he's faking an Australian accent and there's times where, where he's not arbitrarily. So I, I don't know where that is going. Um, there is a really neat uh, car chase, like a couple of jalopies, like racing down a, a dirt road. That was probably my, my favorite bit of the film. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, other than that, it's, it's not the high point for Houston or, or Newman. Not essential spy movie cinema, you guys would yeah. agree. Yeah. Okay. No. Uh, all right. Well, so for our last thing we're going to talk about in this half of the episode, uh, going all the way to the end of the decade, 1979, to talk about not a movie, but a miniseries, a well-respected miniseries called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, again, John LaCare and John Irving directing. This is uh, another one of his... Spy Tales, uh, George Smiley returning, this time as the main character, played, of course, by the great Alec Guinness. And it's another one of his films that is seems almost impenetrably complex when really there's a very human story at the center of it, which if you focus on it, you will, you'll get it. You know, you'll, don't worry. Don't worry about all the ins and outs. There are a lot of, like, there's an interesting structure of like flashbacks and uh, and things like that within the film where that could I, I imagine in the film in the, in the miniseries that I can imagine would be jarring for some people, but I think if you ba- if you kind of like understand where each of these characters is kind of centered in this plot, it's easy to not only not get lost but really appreciate just how rich this work is. Um, it's a I want to say it was originally a seven-part miniseries in, in England, and I think in the U.S. it became a six-part miniseries. Basically, the plot is that George Smiley is, you know, working for MI6, and he and his boss, Control, are essentially uh, kicked out after a very embarrassing operation in Czechoslovakia that they were behind, where one of their agents was um, supposed to meet with a uh, an agent there who was going to tell him who a high-ranking mole in the English government uh, in the Secret Service was. And instead, it was a trap, and he was shot and, um, and kept there for a while before being uh, released in a prisoner exchange uh, program. And so they've been taken out, and the people who've taken over are a couple of very shady guys. And after a while, an agent comes in from the field with information that there may indeed be a mole, and it might be one of these guys who are now running the show, who are in head, who are in charge of the circus, which is so-called because their headquarters, they're headquartered at Cambridge Circus in London. Uh, and so Smiley kind of basically on his own sets up this small team to figure out who the mole is. And that's really is what this is. The story is, is you know, it's a mole hunt. Who's the bad guy? Who is the guy who is infiltrated? But really more so it's like, what does, what has this done? What has, what has this 
uh, Operation Testify, this, uh, this this disaster in Czechoslovakia. Uh, what is the current uh, operation that's being uh, used? What what has it done to these people and uh, and to these men? That's really what like this to focus on. And, and again, rich I think is the word, but it's like a very textured kind of film that is one hundred percent. Uh, brought home by Guinness, who at this point had done Star Wars, you know, so American audiences know who he is, but he is a legend in England. Uh, just his mere casting in this film got like everybody to be in this, you know, and wanted like behind it because he's a legend. That's all. What else can you say? He's a great movie star. It is sort of baffling when you first dive into the first couple episodes because you feel like you have to keep track of like, oh, who's who's Roy Bland and, and, you know, who's, who's Bill Hayden and which one of them is having an affair with, <laughs> with uh, George Smalley's wife and, and who's stabbing who in the back. But, but yeah, really, you know, like a lot of modern serialized shows, if, if you stick with it, it will pay off. And this is just one of the absolute knockout performances from Alec Guinness. And I think what's, fascinated about it is he does so little so much of what he his character is doing is just listening and we're watching him listen to these spies these field agents these you know behind the scenes operators tell their side of the story or lie and we just see him not react calculate you know behind those big thick glasses and it's just immediately compelling and I think the entire series is worth watching just for his encounter with Patrick Stewart playing his sort of opposite number um, in, in the Soviet Union. And they have an interrogation scene that I find extraordinary because it's the most George Smiley talks throughout the entire miniseries, but it's also where he has the least amount of power. Carla, who's played by Patrick Stewart, is entirely silent, and he is absolutely in control of this situation because he has information that George Smiley needs, and George Smiley cannot stop telling Carla why Carla needs to talk, and Carla staying completely silent. And we see George Smiley lose by talking and then understand what he is doing for the rest of the miniseries letting everybody else dig their own graves and load up his ammunition to break the mole later. Not only is he uh, losing control, but he gives away his weakness. I mean, that's the thing is that Patrick Stewart is a prisoner in this scene. You know, he's the thing is like, you know, you can kill me, you can put me away, you can lock me up. But like when I find out that like you have sentimentality towards your wife, that's a weapon I can use against you. Like that's where I can really get at your your heart and your soul. That like you've that's the reason he loses. Is that by again by what John said by by just giving away too information to his enemy. That's what it is. And it's this like, you know, this festering wound that just kind of opens up in him that uh is going to kind of in, indirectly lead to everything that happens after that. Towards the end, there's just this exchange that you like if I had to pinpoint, like, that's great acting right there. That simple, like, like exchange of dialogue uh, when they're talking about someone who, a uh, character who was betrayed in the story. 
and uh and he's talking to the guy who betrayed him who was like you know uh not only a co-worker but like a friend you know like they were partners uh in this and it, it's alleged there's even more than that but like you know they were like two close people and he betrayed him and uh betrayed him to to to, to be a prisoner in Czechoslovakia and he tells him kind of uh just shrugging it off he tells Guinness I got him home didn't I and Guinness t- says to him yes that was good of you holy shit it's just yeah. like that is a buzzer beater right there if i've ever saw one that's just like that's the kind of acting athleticism you want to see in a film and it's honestly the kind of thing that this is the kind of thing you could talk about for a long time and the, the remake with gary oldman is very interesting in its own way um but i think the kind of interesting thing to focus on in this is how not only is it, uh, does it have interesting themes about, you know, where England stands as as a loss as a superpower, you know, against Russia and the United States, but, you know, how class, this this, this phony British idea of class uh, is something that's totally phony and that these characters are trapped by. Uh, and it's something that they need to get out of to understand, like the whole success of this movie is that George Smiley is rogue agent you know he's doing this he's doing this for himself he's not doing it for his government uh and he's doing it because he's he's understood the principles and he's kind of utilizing them his own way the same way that joe does in three days of the condor where he's forced to go out on his own it's a film about uh not relying on the system not relying on establishment but there but but understanding that there are like tools that you've learned that you can now utilize uh through that system so really like a five-star sort of thing uh really really worth watching bill yeah yeah yeah, there's some legendary bbc stuff i mean i claudius which i covered in a podcast a few years ago um which patrick stewart was also in too there was no shortage of uh, top flight talent doing real inspired literary literary work coming out of uh, uh western london over there and you know um the sort of crumbling of empire that we saw in ipris file um, it's reached absolute decrepitude in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. You know, control is just you know he's he's not in control. He's he's falling apart, and that's why his underlings are able to sort of betray him and you know get power for for themselves. Uh, and so it's interesting how this film makes us sympathize with Control and Smiley when they were you know the people responsible for the tragic events of the spy who came in from the cold. Like it, it's, it's, you know, an, another film that's, or mini series forcing us into the perspective of people we would not want to sit down for dinner with. And, and I think with the great performance from Al Guinness and the absolutely stellar supporting cast, it, it's able to, to bring it home because yeah, it, it is, it is a bunch of people like sitting in rooms talking for seven episodes, but yeah, it, yeah. it becomes incredibly compelling. It's a lot of time. Say, keep the budgets down. Believe me, they, they knew yeah. how to save money. Yeah. <laughs> and control, you know, who's dead when the, you know, we get, go into it, you know, we only see him in flashback. He's barely a character, but has that same Richard Burton sadness to him when they come to report what happened in Czechoslovakia. And he kind of just in that second understands like the severity of what's happened and what it's going to mean and how all of his ideals are portrayed and you know everything that's around him has come crumbling down in the way that like you know, like you said like the empire is crumbling around him it's it's rough uh, and uh they did do a sequel smiley's people uh with guinness uh which is also very good 
um guys that's it that's gonna wrap up part one and i think you understand now why i wanted to do this in two different parts yeah, yeah. Uh, sagacious wise so. move yeah but let's just as a way of wrapping up let me ask you these 15 to 20 movies that we watched and talked about uh I'll start with you bill what what which one did you was the biggest surprise for you and which one do you think was completely inessential like you know it was like that ah, was fine but it really doesn't not too impactful in terms of the spy genre um, you know, the one that was uh, Conrad White really took me by surprise. Um, you know, that's such a, a fusion of the stuff that you want for a movie made in that period, but also the modernity of a performance that would hint where acting would go later. And it's just one of the, as I get it, as I become an older and older man, I find that I'm drawn to actors. I find that I'm drawn to performance. I'm, I find that I'm drawn to the different schools of performance, especially when they don't call attention to themselves, but they're clearly doing things in different camps of, of technique. And so that one wound up being um, a real slap in the face. This kind of, I just watched it yesterday too. It's right at the end. And I was really happy to be surprised by that. And in terms of something that was inessential, uh, I don't know. I mean, um, they were all kind of essential. They were, this was a good, um, this was a good exercise, especially to do such a big topic uh, that we watched. The only thing that I, I kind of just walked away again, because the acting thing was uh, Gary Cooper. That really didn't impress me that much. But, you know, there's just so many other rich details. Let's just say these movies weren't about spies. Let's say they just were movies that were like, you know, 100 excellent movies. That's a great reason to watch them all, too. Just just to watch the years tick by to see the way production changes, the way performance changes, the way direction changes and distribution. You know, it's a real, a real time capsule of business, too. Agreed. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give mine so we can have uh, John uh, play us out here. Charade obviously was the one that I uh, wasn't wasn't terribly into and was kind of disappointed in. Uh, although it wasn't 100% a surprise that I was disappointed in it. Uh, and Quiller Memorandum obviously is one that, uh, you know, I found interesting, but an interesting failure to, to say the least. Uh, the most surprising one, I, I really am glad to have finally seen Three Days of the Condor. I'm glad that Bill Shamey uh afterwards because that was appropriate but <laughs> and i really because i really enjoyed it and i really liked it but five fingers i think was the one that i expected nothing from it even has like a very generic title five fingers what does it even mean i thought terrible it was a slam title. terrible title yeah yeah a slam dunk of a movie and i would really recommend people check this one out and talk about it more because it's it's a damn fine film i really liked it john arminio what do you say yeah um it was just a real pleasure uh, revisiting Ipcris File and um, Tinker Taylor for me. Like it, to rediscover those after not seeing them for years, it was really great. And and yeah, I have to agree. Five Fingers um, was something that I had no knowledge of before doing this podcast, and that was you know that really blew me away. And Mask of Demetrios was something that very unusual format for a spy movie. I had never seen anything like that. And just to see Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie on screen for, as the leads was, you know, something unique. And yeah, and I have to agree with you, John, I think Quiller Memorandum is um, pretty slight in, in comparison to a, a lot of these films. Incredibly slight. It's like, it's not even the best Max von Sydow villain movie we watched. Yeah. Ultimately. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much. Uh, where can people find you in terms of social media and stuff like that? Or is there anything, any projects coming up you want to pitch? Bill, you got any videos coming out that we should know about? Let, let us know. 
I've been slowly hacking away at a movie about one of my favorite, uh, a video about one of my favorite movies uh, called Support the Girls. Um, I'm just sort of still in the writing phase, trying to um, come up with a concept. To, 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 it's just it's just a great movie. I think people should watch it. But I, my podcast runs on the regular. We do uh, I Don't Get It Weekly to Middle-Aged Men, look at popular culture trends and really try to give it a, a kick in the tires to see if it's something that we like to. But I'm on Twitter at William Scurry. I'm on all the socials pretty much at that name. I'm on Instagram. I'm on all that shit. Yeah, and I, I don't get it as the name of the podcast. Cross-reference that with uh, Bill Scurry. You'll find some trace of me out there. Hi, I'm John Arminio. Um, I'm at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. I'm the co-host of the Popcorn Eschaton podcast with Scott Thoreau, which is on the Zebras in America feed. We talk about... Um, Movies from a spiritual and or leftist lens to try and add some, you know, levity to discussing those two, you know, very kind of controversial topics and approach them seriously without sturm and drang, maybe. Um, and Scott was the person who suggested I watch The Spook Who Sat By The Door, which I did in preparation for this episode. And, and that was a real treat. So thank you, Scott, for turning my eyeballs into a movie that I um, probably should have been looking at and it wasn't through it wasn't um, if it wasn't for the perspective of somebody as, as intelligent as Scott Thurow I, I would not have thought about it to watch it before this series so so Popcorn Escatop uh, check it out thank you so much guys uh, I'll see you back in the 1980s for the second part of our spy movie marathon uh, which has been an absolute blast an absolute pleasure for me and I really appreciate I uh, really enjoyed this conversation with you guys. Thanks very much. Thank you, man. Thank you. Burn all records of this conversation. <laughs>